I was a lion in the tall grass. Wish I had a pilot and a podcast. Wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars scats. Wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth. You can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like, I wish, I wish. And every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. And every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish. And every time we love and it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels Wish I had a time machine. Wish I had a better rhyming. I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from my lima bean. Hello, cats and kittens, and welcome to episode 48 of The Debrief. I am your host, Brianna Joy Gray, and we have got a lot to talk about. The news won't stop newsing, of course. Uh, last night or the night before was the correspondence dinner, which has been the focus of a lot of news and takes, especially because in the context of the Donald Trump campaign, it became a real flashpoint for your political orientation. He famously did not attend the event, which a lot of liberals thought was, you know, reflective of his general softness and, you know, another reason to own Trump. But a lot of people on the left have also criticized the correspondence dinner for being kind of a display of the problem with media right now, that they are enmeshed with the political establishment, and people had mixed feelings consequently about the job that Trevor Noah did. I think some people appreciated some nods to, you know, Julian Assange, and at the same time, there was some preachiness at the end about how American journalists need to be so grateful they won't be thrown in jail for their takes. You know, there was some, I think, rightful critique of the COVID theater of them all being in this room at a quote-unquote super spreader event after kind of maligning uh, conservatives for doing the same. Of course, there were many Fox News conservatives in the room who did get PCR testing before they came to the event who behave as though those kinds of um, hurdles are beneath them when they go on air, and both of those things were called out. And I know that most of you are probably here to talk about today's episode of Bad Faith, which speakered the uh, features the wonderful Sparky Abraham, whom I adore, writer at Current Affairs, friends from back in the day, um, and a consumer debt attorney who speaks probably more compellingly than anyone else I've ever talked to about both the moral need for um, all kinds of debt cancellation and debt jubilees, but also in the specific case, the legal frameworks available for Joe Biden, not just to cancel student debt right now, but he also had an argument for how I, how he can make public colleges and universities tuition-free. I will play a clip from that, but I want to start first with this kind of amusing tidbit from the Correspondents' Dinner, if you'll indulge me, and then we'll start taking questions. Importantly, First Lady Dr. Jill Biden is here, everybody. Give it up for her. You know, interesting fact, even as First Lady, Dr. Biden continued her teaching career. Yeah, the first time a presidential spouse has ever done so. Ever. Congratulations. Now, you might think it's because she loves teaching so much, but it's actually because um, she's still paying off her student debt. I'm sorry about that, Jill. Yeah. I- L-O-L. All 
All right. Let's start hearing from you. Bide, you are up first. What's on your mind this evening? Hey, how's it going, Brie? I'm doing all right. Uh, uh, the guy you had on today was really fantastic. Uh, and I think he, he really cuts to the point of why student debt relief is so such an important issue. I mean, there are a lot of other ones, but um, I thought there was a point during the conversation where you were talking to him about uh, some of the different plans, you know, whether we should do some kind of permanent forbearance for uh, interest on student loans and whether that would be more effective or not. And he responded with something along the lines of, yeah, I can get into these, you know, some of these more wonky approaches to what's the actual best form of student debt relief. Um, but the the fact of the matter is, or the point is that this should be free in the first place. And mm -hmm. I mean, to me, that's, it's easy to lose sight sometimes of like just how political conversations happen in this country. Um, you will have a, a sort of a, an ideal about how a society should actually function. Someone will offer you basically or set like the parameters of the conversation with like you can have X or Y and you forget that the goal is Z the whole time. Mm -hmm. Um and I don't know. I just I I kind of needed a reminder of that. I don't really have very much else to say. I just really thought he was uh, really something, just really great. Yeah, I'm so glad you said that because I don't think that Sparky gets his flowers enough. I mean, because he's so humble also, and he will defer to others. But he has this really, I think, compelling and magical mix of kind of moral focus and also technical know-how to back up what he's saying. And right. most everything that I've learned about student debt and the arguments that I make, I've picked up from Sparky along the way. For those of you who haven't, you know, aren't longtime listeners to Bad Faith, I did an episode with both he and Astra Taylor, um, who's one of the co-founders of the Debt Collective, I think last fall. And he was also on, I think about a year ago last spring, along with uh, um, Bridget Reed, uh, who writes currently, I believe for New York Magazine, previously wrote for Vogue, talking about some of these issues. So there's a lot of opportunities to hear him on the podcast, and I keep having him back because I think both his personal story as having gone to community college is a lot more, you know, relatable, <laughs> frankly, than mine. And it really demonstrates what I often say, which is under the under the, you know, under the logic of a lot of the opponents of this policy, what they're saying is that someone like Sparky just should not be allowed to go to law school at all, much less a prestigious law school or that gives you the ostensibly, and I know there's a lot of, you know, caveats to this, but the best education, and he can't then use that education to represent the most destitute clients right. in the way that he does. We're basically saying, well, if you want to represent poor people, you should go to a, a lesser institution or you should have lesser right. opportunities. Which is ridiculous. I mean, when, when you start to break it down like that, it's ridiculous. It, it, it's almost like a forced uh, job manufacturing of your job consent by narrowing the degree of acceptable, um, you know, career paths that you can choose after going to one of these schools, you're almost seen as in like, you're, you're throwing th something away for going to try to get quote unquote, the best education you can get, and then deciding to use that for the good of your community. It's almost as if no idiot, you're supposed to go make as much money as possible. Like, right. haven't, you, haven't you seen the path? And I think that's, that's another problem that I sort of have with the way this conversation ends up happening a lot is that, you know, they'll look at someone like you 
and they'll say, well, you did go to one of the best, quote unquote, again, best law schools in, uh, you know, I'm not, no shade, no shade or anything. Um, I'm a state school guy myself, but uh, you did go to one of the best law schools in the country. Uh, you did have all of these opportunities that other people didn't have. And I think there's a, a certain level of reflection that you have about what opportunities you were given, uh, possibly because people assumed a level of competency because you had that on your resume. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's some some truth to that. But I think to use that to attack the idea that people should not have student debt relief, that education, sorry, that education should not be um, uh, accessible to people mm-hmm. is is a red herring. And then we end up having these conversations about the, you know, the merits of our own sort of, uh, you know, are we truly the sort of ideological people we purport ourselves to be? Are we, you know, really down with the revolution? Are we really, mm-hmm. you know, really about it, about it? And, and to me, that like, you know, I've been hearing things in some socialist circles where they don't want to let certain people in to the conversations because they say, you know, like I've been called as a lawyer, someone called me a class enemy. And the whole time I'm thinking like, yo, like if the inevitable sort of end of capitalism is squeezing us all out, then aren't we all going to eventually have to be on that same side? Like eventually yeah. that's how it happens. And, you know, and um, also, you know, Frederick Engels, didn't he own textile factories or something like that? You know, it's like, well, are we gonna yeah, you, everyone knows that I'm not a historian and I don't read anything. Well, but I, I do feel like it's a difficult question, right? Because my position on that is if someone wants to look at me with skepticism because I am in a different class position, I think that's completely fair. There are times when my behavior is motivated by my class status and I get caught up in it. And I, it, the, the reminder that I'm speaking from a place that is out of touch is is warranted and right and i i appreciate being checked at the same right. time i think it's really short-sighted to decide that your enemy in the grand scheme of the wealth disparities that we know exist is someone making two hundred thousand dollars a year and i i understand that's a hard pill for people to swallow who are making a minimum wage salary or who are unemployed and are you know there's a huge difference you know that's that represents 10 times more than someone else is making but yeah. we know these numbers about millions and billions and how difficult it is to estimate the difference and how, you know, millions will be seconds and billions is the time it takes to get to the moon walking. And and people, <laughs> you know, we just got to keep that perspective that there are so many people. I mean, uh, for better or for worse, I mean, for worse, argue, you know, obviously, that are making that amount of money that you're really kind of stacking the deck against a, a class project. And Democratic politicians, politicians across the political spectrum understand that. It's why they gear all of these policies toward the middle class and not the poor. One, 100%. because everybody sees themselves as middle class. And two, because it's a lot of people that are encompassed under this umbrella. Joe Biden says he won't raise taxes on anybody who earns less than $400,000 a year. And that's okay. But all of a sudden when we're talking about people who might earn a six-figure salary but also have six-figure debt and have net negative assets, we're all of a sudden – all the people who had no issues with the PPP and the upper transfer of wealth and all of this stuff suddenly want to make an issue of an attorney and basically change the script on us midstream, which when I was going to college was not you got to go to Harvard to make all the money. It was you should take the best education you can get that will afford you the most opportunities. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it takes 
it makes anytime we have a conversation where the parameters have been set by, you know, the sort of political elites who are already running everything, um, the, you know, under $400,000 versus over $400,000 debate, we're losing. Mm-hmm. We're, it's, it, it reminds me of like, you know, this will be the last thing I say. I don't want to take up too much time, but the, the, the obfuscation that happens from a lot of the culture war shenanigans that end up putting us into a conversation or into a dialogue where what we're discussing is the don't say gay bill, which absolutely is, you know, has its merits to discuss, but is absolutely being used right now as a political sort of cudgel to stop people from actually addressing uh, things that the majority of Americans actually agree on, you know, mm-hmm. fixing health care, uh, the list, we know the list, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's, I, I guess I'm just worried that, I don't know, I share your worry from sort of the Democrats. I, I never really thought about how the $10,000 of forgiveness could end up leaving a lot of people in just the same damn situation with a lot of the IDR and income-based repayment. Yeah, so plans. let's let's just say that lay that out really quickly for those who didn't listen to the episode or who right. aren't subscribers. So I think that is perhaps the most important point here, which is that since this is mostly federally federally held debt, and most people are already like not on on target to pay back their loans before they die. <laughs> Because they are on an income-based payment plan, which says you only have to pay a certain amount based on how much income you're making. And under those plans, a lot of people, maybe even most people, have their total balance growing because they're paying less than the interest on their loans. Which means, ostensibly, if the program works, which there's some doubt of because they haven't been keeping track of payments and it's a whole clusterfuck. But if the the plan works, then as people start to approach the end of these 25-year cycles, whatever's outstanding will just cancel be canceled. So that means if I have, let's say $60,000 of debt, it's growing over the course of the 25 years I'm paying because I'm paying less than the interest. I get to the end of the 25 years and it's $100,000 of debt. It made no difference to me that that 60,000 became 50,000 because Joe Biden canceled 10,000 of that debt. All that was is money put into the coffers, you know, like handed right back from the federal government to the federal government who owned my loans and does absolutely nothing to change my personal payments as someone on one of these plans. Exactly. So you could go that entire time, even after the $10,000 is credited to you, and pay the same amount towards your loans, the same monthly amount, over and over and over again, until you reach either the 25-year limit um, or the 10-year limit if you're in the public interest sector. Mm-hmm. And then the, the remaining outstanding balance of the loans is forgiven, even though you've already paid uh, more than way more than the the actual principle which you took out in the first place um you know and and that that's something that for some reason i just haven't really thought about before it's mm-hmm. it's obvious when you hear it but that's actually kind of terrifying um and, yeah, because, yeah yeah go ahead i'm sorry oh no well, they're, they're getting away with doing nothing and it's not actually changing the material condition for the people who are under this pressure and that's what we're trying to solve here are, you know, the, the, the degree to which people have had to put their lives on hold, have had to stop themselves from having families, from seeking certain career opportunities, from seeking only high paying career opportunities, mm-hmm. which actually end up putting them into situations to where they're now perpetuating a system that is oppressing the people who will not take those opportunities. It's, it's really diabolical when you think of it like that. And I don't want to get too like, 
conspiracy theorist about we'll it. Do it, conspiracy theorists. Just like goddamn, it, it, like, what? That is that's so like it's so like honestly, honestly, I don't want to be like here in my apartment alone. Like, oh my god, they're out to get us with. But, but they have to understand this. They do. And, and as evidence of that, people have been circulating an article by Axios that pointed out that it's SoFi who are, who made the case for 10000 to begin with. God contributed damn. to the Biden campaign. It is exactly those lobbyists for all of these do. refinancing companies that are the only – or the main ones profiting off of these loans at this point, taking advantage of the fact that people like me have eight – percent interest rates and getting us to refinance with them so then then by the way you don't get the benefit of these desk cancellations to you know depending on how they structure it that's always why i never refinanced because i was always hopeful you, you, <laughs> one, you, yes one i was never sure if i was going to do public interest work and i wanted to be able to do income-based repayment or something if i switched legal tracks and then right. ultimately i became hopeful that some kind of death cancellation would come down the pike but regardless it's those those exact companies that have been lobbying for this exact relief because they understand better than the msnbc pundits who barely give this conversation any real weight that it, it means nothing and it changes nothing for their bottom line the msnbc people don't need to give it real weight because this isn't an issue that affects most of them but yeah. they, they 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 don't have any experience with it and also every time you say eight percent interest rate I have a little bit of a mini heart attack because <laughs> I, I honestly like I start almost having a panic attack again because I was at 6.9% mm-hmm. and holy shit, the mm-hmm. amount of, I cannot believe the degree of interest that was like coming in month after month after mm-hmm. month after month. I paid like an extra 50 some odd grand mm-hmm. on that. And I was going ham mm-hmm. on real hard. And, and like, no, that's, I don't see how they can think that's a, that's not a sustainable system. Okay. And that's, and and that's, it, yeah. And that's the thing. And I'm not trying to whine and I know I'm whining a lot and I'm going to move on for myself, but the, the dialogue is the people who did everything right, who paid back their loans, et cetera, they're not benefited. And I'm like, no, that's the same people. Like literally yes. I am, you can't accuse me of getting a liberal arts degree. You can't accuse me of wasting my time at Harvard. You can't accuse me of not going into corporate law. I did literally everything you people wanted. And the whole point is that even under that circumstance, it was difficult. It continues to be difficult for me to pay back my loans. And the question is whether you, what kind of so like um, behavior you're trying to motivate. And, you know, and if you want me to continue to just sit around exploiting people all day, then I guess you really do think that I should just have to go and do that with my law degree. But, you know, there are a lot of people who do want to become public interest attorneys who do want to do things like what Sparky is doing that he said on the podcast, he's only able to do because we're in this loan abatement. Right. Because even the tiny bit, even the smaller amounts under income-based repayments are too much for people. Right. And I remember when I was trying to become a journalist, there's no there's no loan forgiveness or income-based repayment for these non-legal jobs. Right. And so, okay, I guess I'm, I'm screwed. That's on me. I thought when I was 22, I wanted to be a lawyer. Didn't really know what that entailed. Didn't have any lawyers in the family. It was a mistake. And mm-hmm. I guess I just have to be a slave to this corporation for the rest of my life because who else is going to pay a 26-year-old enough money to keep up with the $2,300 a month loan obligation? that's why I'm, I say we need to reject the parameters of that conversation, which puts it as a personal responsibility conversation for you. We need to keep it on the parameter, you know, like that you didn't do everything right. Cause then now we're also having to justify whether or not we did everything right. Motherfucker, life is hard. Some people go through some shit. Some people don't get to actually finish college and they still have the loans. We have to talk about what our tax dollars should actually be doing for us because we already pay the motherfuckers to begin with, period. So I don't like the idea of like, I don't like having to justify my life to people constantly 
especially when it's like you do feel like you're doing the right thing or you've tried to do everything right and you're still feeling it. That's when you should realize, okay, well, the conversation's bullshit. Like yeah. the idea here is bullshit and the solutions that are being pro-offered are, are bullshit. And that, you know, I just think, I, I like the fact that he had his eye on the ball though, that uh, y- y- your guest was really very much like, look, we're one of the only countries that is in this Western world or whatever that still doesn't pay for a public education. And why would, like, how does that actually help us as a society? It just doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't at all. And, and the more we have this conversation or the more people keep trying to push this idea of like someone's getting something that, you know, like somehow I'm, because I paid back my loans, I'm somehow losing out on something by letting the rest of everyone, you know, who's in a similar situation as to what I was, like, I have to have them personally suffer or personally feel like shit and not, and put their lives on hold because I had to do that. No, that's, that is ridiculous. The the fact in the matter, like the truth is that we should have already not been in that situation. And we need to make sure that that stops. The next generation isn't going to have to deal with it. Will they be in a better situation? Yeah. But like, you know, why would I want this, this kind of personal pain and personal like justification politics it's so ass backwards. It's so it's ass so, backwards. It, it makes me sad because, like, I keep saying this as a joke, but honestly, like, someone was in the mentions today because this came up on Rising this morning, and someone in the comments was like, or maybe it was under one of the bad faith videos, I can't remember, was like, why should I have to pay for your college? You know, you're an elite. And the person's right. handle was something along the lines of, like, my three sons, or I love my three sons. And so I said, you know, why should I have to pay for your three sons to have access to public school in the library and school buses and all of the things that kids get and people with families get and all the tax breaks that people with families get and all the tax breaks that people with mortgages get. And obviously I don't believe that. Like, I don't think that way because I'm not a monster, <laughs> but right. like it, it's, it really, it is very frustrating um, to see people who are ostensibly liberal or even leftist adopting that kind of, approach and it's seeing how easy it is for people to fall for that kind of propaganda and be divided up. I also just want to point out that Joe Biden has never said he was going to cancel grad school debt. So I'm literally not even a, a part of this. <laughs> God, that's a point. I, and he would actually make that move. He would yeah. actually. Make that move. I, I, I'm not even in this. Like I paid off my undergrad debt working while I was in law school, by the way, because it turns right. out that sometimes people with debt worked hard through school Girl, Just like everyone a, else. I, I worked at a, a espresso shop and a bank, both full time, like right the years before law school so I could help pay for it. I had to ride my bike. I had the whole ride your bike through the snow type bullshit to go work at a bank teller window and, you know, hand money off and then go make coffees for people that like, uh, yeah. it's ridiculous. It's, it's ridiculous. Like, the idea that we're not somehow hard workers is like. You know, they can eat it, but I don't want to take up more time. (laughs) Well, well, thank you, but I'd I'd appreciate it. Let's move on for us to lawyers fetching about this stuff before we alienate everybody else. I'm going to skip around in the queue a little bit, but I appreciate you calling in as always. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, let's do Rika next. How are you doing, Rika? Hey, Brie. A little caught guard there. (laughs) Didn't realize you were going to bounce around, but I should have figured because you do that. (laughs) I do that Um, now. I got to keep everybody on their toes. (laughs) Yes. Um, I... Um, God, so much to say. I love, I I love everything you do, but this episode was just like, yes, go in. And I, I just cannot, 
I'm really struggling with not having like a crazy meltdown over the reactions from libs around like the 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 whole means testing of everything and like the whole like um you we shouldn't have to pay for everyone or the rich like they're buying into those arguments i'm like this is insane like this is insane when did we stray so far away from the notion that education is actually like a human right Mm -hmm. like we actually should have education as a human right so i was just like i don't know it's just insane and i appreciated the kind of um, both moral clarity that was provided in this podcast episode and also just like the, you know, also the details on like all the possible options that we could go in the event that we don't get what we want kind of thing. Cause I, I actually haven't heard much of that. And I thought that was just like super, super informative. So just wanted to say that. Well, thank you. And like I said, everyone should go listen to everything Sparky does. Follow him if you're in California and need, you know, debtor services, please do reach out. Uh, you know, he talked about the need for there to be, you know, l- you know, legal aid avenues that aren't these big institutions that have some perverse incentives. And people like him are supported not only by stuff like student do- debt cancellation, but by people like patronizing their services. So, you know, I think often about Matt Brunig and how we only have so many good policy ideas because he has a patron and they're like crowdsourced. Yeah, and totally. I, you know, I obviously wish we didn't have to like crowdsource like legal funding, but <laughs> to the extent that we do, I couldn't, I couldn't sing um, Sparky's praises more highly. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And so I have some questions for you just because I have been watching the whole, like your appearances on rising. And I have been wanting to say like, you are saving that show's ass every time you go on there. <laughs> because oh. I like truly, truly, because I feel like they, they're obviously with Crystal and Saga doing their own thing. Um, I feel like they're more in alignment around like a power analysis around like who they're critiquing when they're bringing their points. And ever since they left the the people on the Hill, I feel like they're all just like trying to make gotcha points about the supposed left or right or whatever. And it's like, it, it, there's not even like really full flushed arguments. Like no one's, no one's actually engaging in their arguments. It feels like there's a lot of like points that are trying to be made. And, and I have to say, I'm like incredibly disappointed with Ryan Grimm representing anything that would constitute a left. <laughs> you guys are rough. Oh boy. <laughs> well, listen, 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 listen. I am not saying that. Yes, I am saying I have been disappointed. Room for improvement always. Um, so I, and I, so there's a couple things that I wanted to ask you though. Mm-hmm. One, um, like when, how, because they do bring up, and I've noticed this with Robbie, is like he brings up a lot of like culture war stuff. Mm-hmm. How 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 do you navigate like? Because I feel like from from what I've gleaned from your perspective is that you're very attentive to how they can be a distraction, but also how there is meaningful substance, and you really do a good job of like bringing that all in together. Like how how do you navigate that? when it seems like they're trying to very clearly bring stuff up to foment like outrage about the Democrats or left or whatever Mm -hmm. as being ridiculous, but like also like there's meaningful stuff to actually engage in that. Like, I guess I'm just curious about how you feel you're doing on that and navigating that and 
all that. I got to tell you, it is it is difficult. And that's part of my reservation, you know, some of my reservations about whether or not I, you know, wanted to do it long term. Yes. I, I don't know if this was just me, but I couldn't hear like you kind of cut in and out twice when you were just oh. replying. Just wanted okay. to say that. All right. Is it, does it sound yeah. okay now? Is this, can you guys hear me? Hello. Hi. Can you guys not hear me? Hello? I can hear you now. Oh, weird. Okay. I'm not sure what that's about. Um, assuming that everyone can hear me, uh, <laughs> I, it's a difficult thing to navigate. I can feel, I just want to be really honest. I can feel the pressure to do a radar about some of these culture war things because that's what will get clicks. And nobody cares. It's not like I'm being like rated on how many views my segment gets. But there is this weird natural competitiveness when you see, you know, Robbie's or or Kim's um, radar about maybe something relating to mask mandates or something related to culture war and seeing that there's an ab- obvious appetite for those things. And more more so than just like the competitive like Leo streak in me, there is an understanding that if that's what gets people's attention, is there a way I can use those issues to redirect back to something I think mm-hmm. is more important? And I'm still trying to negotiate that um, and figure out what that looks like. I had a conversation with someone today who, you know, off camera and off the record, who was, you know, conservative, like a regular person who, you know, was it was a good, solid conversation. He was explaining to me. You know, his concerns about CRT and his, you know, mixed race daughter's school and, you know, how he's concerned as a white parent that she, you know, is telling him things like you, you know, all white, you know, everybody who voted for Trump is racist. And, you know, that hurt him as a father. You know, obviously, if your black daughter comes home to talk about your racist that you voted for Trump, now a lot of people will say, well, he shouldn't have voted for Trump. Trump was a racist. And, you know, I understand that people feel that way. But I also think it's pretty obvious why someone in his position specifically would feel antagonistic toward the kind of the liberal messaging that happens in school, whether or not you agree with it, when it has this kind of direct impact on his life. And obviously this is like a niche – this is a specific example. But I can't look at someone like that and just be totally dismissive because it's undeniable that he loves his daughter. He's telling me this with, with plain hurt on his face and compassion in his voice, but he just doesn't get it. He, he doesn't get it. It's more than the 45-minute conversation we had time for to, to explain. But what was funny is that over the course of the conversation, he also had all these issues and, you know, confusion about trans issues, which, of course, every time I tried to get him to stick to the point about his daughter, there was a little bit of a redirection where he wanted to fight fight the fight of, you know, his, you know, trans confusion. But mm-hmm. when I finally got down to the end of the conversation – I and he we were talking very empathetically about like how to relate to his daughter and I was trying to offer some advice as an expert in biracial studies <laughs> lol uh, just because of all of the somewhat mixed up biracial dudes I've dated in my life um, I I we were like having a real heart to heart and I and I offered very gently that some of the classes that he dismisses that people take in college the gender studies the racial studies they are geared toward understanding his daughter's experience and helping mm. the world be easy for her and people like her and to navigate that world. And that maybe he shouldn't be so dismissive of the idea of racial studies because that's exactly what's supposed to be benefiting his daughter in this world. And it seemed like he mm-hmm. took a moment with that, right? But that was right. a 45-minute conversation. Totally. With someone yeah. who likes me and trusts me already and have some rapport with. 
And but I, I saw like I, I could feel the kernel of an opportunity in that conversation. Like, okay, here's a way that I was able to really get a sense of where someone was coming from on these culture issues and hold my tongue on some things that he said that I didn't love, I gotta say. Right. <laughs> but to get to the point, the kernel of something that I thought I thought he could like resonate with. And so it makes me not that that kind of moment makes me think, oh, okay, there's some value here at engaging on these culture topics. Because people who are frankly liberal have some discomfort with, you know, all messaging that happens in school. I was in a museum yeah. this weekend and I heard it, there was like a, there was like an exhibit on uh, the great migration. And I heard a white mom explaining to her kid what the great migration was. And she was doing a fine job. I'm sure she's liberal and was doing her best, but I was like cringing through it and I had to leave the room, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and the idea like some white teacher, if I ever have a child is going to be explaining that same lesson to my kid someday. And it, and it's not that I against that lesson, but I cringe because I know that I would do it better and differently or, or at mm-hmm. least differently. And some mm-hmm. version of that is playing out around a lot of these issues on top of the broader culture stigma that's around some of these specific issues of race and gender and stuff. Yeah. 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 And I, I guess I'm, I'm just curious too. I, it feels really clear to me at least that there. there isn't a how do I say I have not seen a lot of leftists that are doing like alternative media and granted there aren't that many that I listen to but a few um who are engaging with culture war stuff in a meaningful way like I I actually don't think it's meaningful anymore to kind of keep dodging these issues Mm -hmm. right and because every time we do, we lose people like that who are just thinking that we're, they, they think that liberals represent us. And then, then all of a sudden that we're mm-hmm. the ones that are behind some of these pretty like weird ass takes on it. And, mm-hmm. and in part too, the Democrats like don't have meaningful positions on a lot of these culture wars issues as well, to be honest. Like mm-hmm. a lot of them don't, they, they, they will either parakeet like simple phrases, but without any like argument behind it, or Mm -hmm. they just like abandon it altogether and just call them crazy. And, or, you know, you know, whatever the epithet is, it might be meaningful. It might be accurate, like racist, right. Or whatever, but it, it, it doesn't necessarily like get into the argument. And right. And to me, you know, that's been my my bugaboo this whole time. It's why I started writing. Cause I felt like liberals were saying things that I half agreed with. That, but that were poorly articulated in an overreach that made the whole concept seem laughable. So I wrote about, you know, cultural appropriation because it's like, okay, there's something there to this exploitation that happens when, you know, a white person Free? can take out a loan. Oh, yes. Hello? Sorry, I, I couldn't hear that last part. I, th- I think what's happening is that when I so, I, so I've been opening Colin on my computer because sometimes the chat doesn't load on my phone. And I want to read the chat, but I've noticed just today, this doesn't normally happen. It seems like when I'm opening the chat on my computer, it's, there's like some kind of interference and in my, everything's getting confused. So I'm not going to look at the chat and see so it's like the newest chat on my phone is from 14 minutes ago. And so I'm sorry if I'm not responding to the chat or looking, but apparently I'm not allowed to do that today. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's all to say, uh, what, what were we saying? What are we talking about? I, the uh, last thing that I heard you say was, I, or I had commented on like the lack of engagement around the culture war stuff. Oh yeah, because pe- yeah, so yeah. people, pe- so there's like, 
yeah, there's something there to cultural appropriation, but it can't just be this reductive argument where that lets the Republicans argue what you can't borrow from someone's culture or well, I guess black people aren't allowed to speak English. Yuck, yuck, yuck. You know, like yeah. you got to figure out how to make your, your argument more precise so it can't be pushed to this absurd place. And so much of my writing about identity politics, everything was about trying to be more specific because I think a lot of well-intentioned liberals are out here just saying stuff. When they don't really understand what racism is, why something is racist, and so they have this reductive stance that has this father out here feeling like his daughter's being taught that he's a racist because he's a Republican and all the Republicans right. voted for Trump. Like it or not, maybe you think all Republicans are racist. That's a fair claim, but y'all weren't caring when it was all the Republicans voting for Romney or Bush or McCain or whomever it was. Right. And so, like, I, I, I really just want – my, 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 my urge to be drawn, like my, my attraction to talking about the cultural issues is because I don't want to cede that ground. I don't want to cede too much ground. I'd rather cut off the abscesses <laughs> so mm -hmm. the good part can thrive. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, I guess I, I feel like where this kind of happened a little bit too, when I was watching breaking points where, um, it's like Sagar and, um, said something about like trans ideology or whatever and like that's what the point of the the no don't say gay bill was or whatever whatever yeah, it was. i saw and, that debate yeah 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 and, and and like crystal like didn't didn't take that bait and was like you know like really like no this is really what it is you know mm -hmm. and was like really clear and i was like so he you know their saga just dropped something that is actually like a used discourse around opposing like a lot of legal stuff that's happening around trans issues and we're not like no one's going to address that you know what like it's just like it's completely yeah. gone you know and people and aren't think, reading the, the the bills like that's another thing that's frustrating yes, to me it's like yes. if we're going to talk about one of these bills in the on the show i would like to have it in front of me and just go through point by point and we don't have the space to do that in a, like a short segment show like that the way we do on the podcast but like this, like like what happened to my my debate with Andrew Sullivan? He's mad about CRT in schools. He's saying the worst things ever are being taught in schools. And I simply asked, okay, well maybe I agree with you if it's that bad. Tell me one of the things. Just give yes. me an example of one of the things. And then it became, oh well, I don't know. Da da da. on the internet. Google it. I said we have time. This is not a live show. Google it. We'll cut the part out while while you're googling. And it was nothing. You know, it's nothing. Yeah. 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 Well, I I just. I appreciate all the the work you do and kind of like engaging on all those multiple fronts and doing it effortlessly. Um, and I am just like, I think, you know, the Hill is just very fortunate to have you. Though I have one last question and then I'll, I'll give it up for folks. As yeah. you've, you've often, um, I'm just curious about the choices for how you um, articulate your ideology, which you've said a couple of times, you're a libertarian socialist. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I live for that as someone who like my North star is anarchism. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. That's like my, my, like my, um, yeah, my North star is how I usually describe it. And I'm curious uh, just personally about your, wh what is the meaningful difference between for you around like someone who is a libertarian socialist and an anarchist like what 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 is the meaningful difference for you <laughs> well you know me I, i'm not a book reader so the reason i call myself a libertarian socialist sometimes is i got it from nathan robinson and i liked his explanation and i think for me it's about a real skepticism 
of the authoritarianism that can come along with a certain degree of government control and being clear-eyed about that in a way that some strands of liberalism aren't. And there's a lot of critique of socialism by people who conflate it with authoritarianism. And I think especially when we're talking about a lot of these issues like speech issues, I'm highly inclined to be um, disposed toward when there's ambiguity about what the regulation is going to be or repeated demonstrated a repeated demonstrated failure of the regulatory mechanism, whether we're talking about the Hunter Biden tapes or, you know, um, uh, Julian Assange or whatever it is, then I'm, I'm inclined toward openness, even if it means, you know, that, you know, we have to allow the Nazis to demonstrate or whatever the ACLU Skokie example is. And so that's basically where I'm coming from is trying to signal a degree of like an, that I don't have an ideological commitment to big, big government, for lack of better words, that I think a mm-hmm. lot of the conservatives presume that a leftist or a liberal is going to have. And I find that it puts some people at ease when you're having conversations in mixed crowds. At very least, it causes them to stop in their tracks because it's an acknowledgement that you don't, you don't think that the idea of a certain degree of um, skepticism of the state Mm-hmm. is uh, evidence of fascism the way that some people talk about libertarians, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally. Cool. Thanks for thanks for sharing that. And I will let you go. And I'll definitely be looking for the uh, episodes coming up. Thank you, Rika. It's always great to talk to you. Likewise. All right. Let's hop around. How about Andre? How are you doing, Andre? Unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind. You with us, Andre? Can you handle the mute situation? If you are not ready, get back in line and I will try you again. But I saw an interesting comment earlier from Reverend Edmund. So, Reverend, you were saying in the comment section that you were told that you had wasted your degree uh, because you chose to go into some kind of public context. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Are you with us, good Reverend? Am Am I jumping around too much and the people in the back? Are just not prepared because I can go back to the front, but don't say I didn't try. Uh, let's go to Dade. Unmute yourself and let us know what's in your mind. Hi, Brianna. Uh, nice to talk with you. It's nice to talk to you as well. What I do you feel think like I've missed your show so many times. All right, so I'd, I'd like to respond to the show that you had today, but if I could just uh, briefly make a point um, on force the vote, I hate to bring it up, but. Uh, I just had an argument for it that I haven't never heard articulated like by the people, the major players. So I just wanted to share it with you briefly, which is that the way that I see that event was sort of a teleological end of 10 years of stuff. So I put it in context, beginning with Shank leaving MSNBC and focusing on the Young Turks kind of connects to the Wolfpack organization that I think really laid the groundwork for Bernie Sanders 2016 campaign. And even so, like so many people that are still in the game today kind of became popular during that 2014 to 2016 time. Obviously, Bernie loses and then the the quote unquote squad is elected. And it was like, okay, well, we can finally start to see some differences here. But there was this thing where, well, Trump being a unique event or a unique leader, like now is not the time. But then come 2020, obviously, Bernie Sanders happens. You have the Iowa caucus. We don't have to get into that. But it was like, since Biden was elected, it was like, okay, it was like 10 years of talking about campaign finance reform into Bernie Sanders, into the squad, 
into all these things. It was finally that teleological moment. And I don't know. I, I just wanted to share that with you because I feel like I never get to, I always miss your show. And I always wanted to say that too. I never hear it talked about or discussed in that context of those 10 years. Mm. Um, and then I wanted to ask you, or if you want to say something. No, I, I, if I catch your drift, I mean, I, I, I think that's right. I think, I think that that's right. I think, look, it, it does kind of feel like, I don't want to say, I mean, look, <laughs> it's hard to know. I don't want to say that it, it's hard to know when people, when people are acting in good faith or bad, whether things are purposeful or if they're kind of orchestrated by design, but the reality is it's difficult to see the 2018 movement given what has come of them, given that we are in the in a context where Nina Turner's congressional race is tomorrow and only just now at like 8 p.m. on the night before has AOC come out and endorsed her. And only after earlier today did we get the Mark Pocan interview on MSNBC where he admitted, he admit that every single one of the members of the CPC voted to endorse Chantel Brown. You can't be in a moment like this where all of a sudden Bernie is flirting you know, leaking a memo and teasing the idea of running again, just as progressives are being needy, needed to draw back in to give Democrats support in the midterms. You can't look at all of this and not feel like this is all the end result of a trajectory that started back in 2016 and start to feel like it was all about cheap hurting. Yeah. And, and I think that connects to the question where I'm going, because it was truly after that first moment that I started to realize that the more cynical and skeptical I am, the more accurate my predictions are. So when this whole conversation now about student loans, you know, my my feeling on it has always been since Biden was elected, like, you know, I'll fucking believe it when I see it, so mm -hmm. to speak. And the question that I wanted to pose to you um, regarding the show you had today was early in the show, you guys talked about a critique, which is that, um, like many people feel, how can you really forgive student loans without addressing the, the, you know, the source cause of it. And aren't you really setting up people who graduate in six months? Like what happens to the person who graduates at the end of this year with all of their loans? And, you know, they say, well, shit, everyone just got their loans forgiven, but now I'm not. And the response that was given was essentially that if you believe, and, and please correct me if I am incorrect here, but the, the response that was given to that argument is if you believe that college should be free, then implicit to that argument is that the debt that is held by people in the economy is therefore immoral. And as such, if you were to give a forgiveness to people who hold loans today, it would actually create even more pressure for the kids who graduate next year or apply even more pressure to the school system that is graduating kids with these loans. Do you think that I'm getting that accurate when I say that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that some people fear that it will breed resentment amongst us and that it won't have the effect of putting pressure on the administration to continue canceling loans. It will put it will, it will basically um, put pressure, uh, you know, d deter anybody from ever giving any one off relief ever again. Now, I think that they're intentionally framing it that way because they want that to be the case because they're trying to use it as a cultural not to cancel any debt to begin with. I think it's actually probably more likely the history of social programs is that once you get them going, it's really hard to turn them off. I think that is truly what they are afraid of. And to Sparky's point, as long as at least there's a sympathetic, you know, person in, in Congress who's willing and sorry, in the White House who's willing to do this, not only could Joe Biden cancel all student debt, he could constructively make public colleges and universities tuition free. 
by routinely, concurrently, every year, canceling the debt as long as Democrats or Biden or whomever it is is in charge. And it's then going to be on the next person to say, I'm going to be the one that undid that process, which is politically toxic in the same way that undoing the moratorium is politically toxic in the same way that cutting Social Security is politically toxic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I see the way people are already turning on each other, and I do have some fear that people would be able to wrestle that up more. But I was reminded today that over 60% of Americans support some degree of student debt cancellation. Because I was getting a little shaken by the bots. I got to confess, I was getting a little shaken by the people in the rising comments. And then I had to remind myself, oh, this is not real life. (laughs) Oh, and I think it is wildly popular. And even myself, like, I personally support it. and, And I would make a huge difference in my life. At the same time, I do see it. Like, when you propose something like, well, if the president were to just forgive the loans with every year, you know, I, I also am sympathetic to the argument of, well, aren't you just giving these incredibly powerful and wealthy institutions a blank check to just charge as much as they want and it will all get filled by the federal government every year. All that being said, I want to just get to my question and then leave it there because I know there's a lot of people in the queue. Mm-hmm. And my question is to you, um, do you think that it's possible that something like that would happen? Do you think that a president like Biden would forgive student loans without addressing the root cause? Or do you think that, and this is to be transparent, kind of the way that I see it, when politicians discuss this topic without discussing the root cause, it's never in good faith. It's never serious. It's always part of the, you know, part of the show, so to speak. And and I don't, so I pose that question. Do you feel I'm too cynical? Do you see it somewhere else? And then thank you for taking my questions and I'll leave it there. Yeah, of course. Look, I don't think that Joe Biden, well, to the extent that Joe Biden is going to do it, it's because $10,000 is very much calculated to do nothing for the reasons we talked about earlier. To the extent that he will do $10,000, it will be because it will not matter a whit for most people. It's going to be the federal government handing the money back to the federal government because most people are on these income-based repayment plans, and it's not going to do anything to put a dent in – Like they're, they're not going to ever pay the full balance of the loan anyway. Right. You know, So I think that that is possible that he might do that because that becomes a justification to, to ending the moratorium, which is much more beneficial to us and also much more harmful to the private interests that are lobbying Biden and are profiting off of the loans. Now, is there a world where Biden does do it because we hashtag, you know, FDR style, make him do it? Yes, but it requires a degree of pressure that I don't know exists right now. Right now, everybody on the internet is accusing me of being responsible for the end of abortion rights in America, because I don't know if you guys have been following, there was a leaked Apparently the first time in the history of the Supreme Court, a decision has been leaked on Roe v. Wade, and they are poised to overturn it, allegedly. And, of course, because I voted for Jill Stein in New York State, a state that has not gone to a Republican in my lifetime, I am personally responsible. You're welcome. I hate abortion. LOL, apparently. (laughs) Proud Jill Stein supporter and voter as well. (laughs) Right. So next time, next time, if you guys want abortion rights – Here's, here's what it is. Cancel my student debt. Apparently, I'm very powerful. <laughs> and if you guys really loved abortion rights as much as you say, I don't see why you wouldn't make the small sacrifice of canceling student debt. These are the stakes. No, obviously, I'm being glib. But on it, like, that, that was the cho- like, that's the kind of choice that I would like to see presented. I'm sorry. Like, you have to be willing to vote withhold. You have to be willing to be able to point to some coalition, whether it's based in labor or 
um, some somewhere else because of the paucity of our organized labor in the country that can credibly say we have conditions to our vote. I don't think it's an accident that Joe Biden finally capitulated and said that thing about how he's definitely going to cancel some debt last week when he was talking to the members of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, not the members of the Congressional Black Caucus who had spoken to about a month before. I went back out of curiosity and listened to the remarks made by the the CBC members before their meeting, after which Biden didn't say anything because he doesn't give a shit about black people. I'm sorry. And what he said after the the CHC meeting or what they said before the, the meeting and the CHC leaders were very specific about a number of demands, including student debt. The CBC members were not. They clearly they brought up things like Juneteenth <laughs> and like crap that nobody cared about. You know, and and like the CHC is getting results because they're making demands because they have a community that is not 99 percent going to vote for Joe Biden no matter what, no matter how much he disrespects them. And do not forget, I will never let anybody forget that Joe Biden on that leaked call with all those black leaders in the fall of 2020 said very explicitly that black people were out, that they couldn't make demands, that Hispanics were in. And it's not because I think he like secretly magically just loves Hispanic people and hates black people. No, it's because he understands that that's a constituency group that he has to earn their vote. And black people, you don't have to earn their vote because they have made it very clear that they're going to vote for Democrats no matter what. And also it's all hate historic when we remember then 2016, there were more Bernie Sanders voters who voted for Hillary than there were Hillary supporters who voted for Obama in 2008. So it's like the people who are on the more liberal side understand this aspect of the game. And I've taken a lot of shit over the last few years for being a, a Jill Stein supporter and a third party supporter in the last election. But I do feel the stars are kind of aligning for I think there's a lot of people who voted for Biden who are like, what the fuck am I even supporting this party for? But I'll leave it there. Brianna, thank you. Wonderful to speak with you. The Twitter trolls are precisely <laughs> that you do incredible work and you're one of the best in the game. So all the best to you. Thank you, Data. I appreciate you. All right. Let's hear from Shelly. What's on your mind tonight, Shelly? Hi. Hi. Can you hear me? I can. Okay, good. Um, well, I guess I, I wasn't ready. I'm so sorry. I, I didn't have a problem. <laughs> it's okay. Do you want me to come uh, back to you or are you, are you regrouped? No, no, no. I'll, I'll go ahead because I, I was kind of making some notes and stuff. Um, I guess the first thing, I wasn't able to listen to the whole episode because I was just super busy today. Mm-hmm. I really liked the guest. He made a whole lot of good points. <clears throat> but I guess the thing that I kind of have the question about is we're talking about how they could do it. What are all the reasons why they might not, how it could actually not be beneficial. And I guess the question that I would kind of have is why do we even think that they want to do it or like. Mm. So I do think that there is a growing awareness that, Mm -hmm. I mean, they obviously have a real pull problem. They have a midterm problem. It's not clear that there's anything that can write that ship at this point. But I do think there is some mounting political pressure for Joe Biden to do something. He's getting it from all angles, including people who are no way in no way leftist, just regular liberals who remember that Joe Biden promised to cancel all student debt for everyone who went to an HBCU under $125,000 a year and at least 10,000 for everybody else. They remember those campaign promises, just like they remember those $2,000 checks. And I think the left has been doing a good job. People like Astra Taylor and Sparky and all of the people we love 
have been doing a really solid job messaging on the fact that Joe Biden's hands are tied. He says he can't do anything. Okay, well, this is something that he can do. And the excuses are diminishing. I feel so bad for him all the time. Right. He's boxed him. He put himself in the corner by using Mm -hmm. the Senate um, obstruction as an excuse for his whole agenda. Now he's only got executive orders and he has no excuse the way that he did when he was berating all of those black people behind closed doors saying, I'm not going to do executive orders. This isn't what I'm going to do. I just don't want to do them because I'm ideologically disinclined and we should do things the right way. Well, now that he's bought himself into, I'm sorry. If you disagree with me, you aren't black. Right. Exactly. So now, now it's like, okay, well, the time's up. All the liberals who were saying, oh, it's only been a year. All of those excuses are gone. And I think he is facing some sincere political pressure to try to do something to look like he's done something. And I think no, that's and what I, 10,000 is about. And that's why we might I, I, get 10,000. Yeah. I, and, and I think that 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 is a, maybe a reasonable assumption to kind of um, reduce some sort of political pressure there. Um, but I guess... And I also see it like and this is going to sound sort of like more of like a right wing type argument. And I don't mean it to. But whenever it is that we continue to bomb, invade, destroy other countries, what usually happens is that who comes over to the United States? It's the engineers, it's the scientists, it's, you know, kind of the academic elite. So. I, I kind of think that some part of our foreign policy is sort of destabilizing other countries so that we can keep our own population uneducated and we don't have to pay for those types of things. And the only thing that we have to pay for is military weapons to destabilize governments. And then we can just get all of their elites over here at a cheaper price. I mean, that's a theory. Look, I am in a place yeah. where I'm not going to knock knock any <laughs> any theory i mean the the kinds of the kind of uh conspiracy theory that makes me that i find to be most credible around the student debt stuff is the uh point that without uh the need for people to get health care and an education through the military we'd have conscription and then our wars would become yep. a lot less popular yep which uh, yeah that that's a whole other argument but I was also going to um, – that was only one of the things that I was going to ask you about as far as the student loan debt. I just wanted – I wrote down this quote from Joe Biden. So, you know, right now he's actively lobbying the Congress for $33 billion to support Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I think 80% of it is a military aid. And this is one of his quotes. We're going to allow pensions and social support to be paid to the Ukrainian people so they have something in their pocket. So why is it that we can just magically create $33 billion so that Ukrainians have something in their pocket and we can't forgive student debt? And then here's the other type of, so kind of what I'm talking about as far as like the whole student debt stuff, we, we kind of talk about like, well, don't we want this for people? And it kind of becomes more of like a moral argument. And I wonder if there's an argument about like competition, because, you know, we're constantly freaking out about the competition with China always. But why don't we want free higher education so that we can graduate like engineers and all these highly educated people so we can actually compete with a country like China? And I'm totally pro-China. So yeah, I, don't no, have I, I think that, that look, I know that Sparky would probably say, you know, let's stick with these moral arguments. We're not there yet. And I, and I totally respect that. But there is a part of me that sees the $10,000 writing on the wall 
and kind of yeah. feels like they're really gearing up for that. And it's time to pivot to an all hands on deck strategy. And I do think yeah. there are a lot of people who will be persuaded by something like that. You know, yeah. now I, I I'm, a little, the right. I'm sorry. I think maybe, maybe more of the right or yeah. maybe kind of I mean, like the neoconservative hawk. But the problem is, and I tweeted about this, I think yesterday, that there's already a bunch of people who are like, okay, cancel student debt, but only for STEM. And that is kind of not where we need to go either. Because for one, they're saying if, you know, if you got a, you know, if you were pre-med and an English degree and you went to law, went to med school, that doesn't count as STEM. You know, like everybody would argue that it's socially beneficial to have more doctors with less debt that can work in low-income neighbor, you know, communities that they're from. But that has nothing to do with STEM. You could work in a STEM job and grow up and make, you know, electric razors or, you know, design car elevators for Mitt Romney. <laughs> There's no, like, moral value to STEM. It's just that people think that STEM jobs make money. And a lot of people in my comments after I tweeted that were like, no, I work in STEM and I don't make any money. Like, it's not socially, yeah. it's not necessarily socially beneficial and it doesn't necessarily make money. So what is this, like, weird fetishization of the idea of getting a STEM degree. And I'm a little wary of feeding into that narrative. My argument for that would be now attack them from the right and say, um, well, every person has the freedom and the liberty to choose their own pathway. And what we hope is by opening up the ability for people to have free education, more people will take the risk to go into STEM. And so you still leave it open for all. So no, I absolutely... I don't agree with the argument that make it only for STEM, but I, I wanted to give one, I, I kind of wanted to give one more comment and then I'll open it up and I wanted to see what you thought, think about it. You know, it, Rika kind of mentioned sort of like anarchy in his heart and kind of you identifying as a libertarian socialist and you explain that. <clears throat> but then I think it's like constantly contrasted against this idea of authoritarianism. And my main question is more about like, wh what do we mean by a authoritarianism like if you look at the definition of authority it's basically like someone has the ability to act on power so what's the power directed towards and what i would kind of say is i would kind of say the united states is probably the most authoritarian government in the world maybe our, our own citizens don't feel the authoritarianism because we can talk on twitter and we can say fuck the president and let's go brandon and all that type of stuff but at the same time if you bring it back to Julian Assange, you're talking about a non-United States citizen that was never in the United States whenever he released any of his information. And we're going to sit here and we're going to criticize all of these other countries for them being authoritarian. And meanwhile, the United States has the legal jurisdiction to pluck a non-United States citizen out of any country they choose and bring them to America and lock them away for 175 years. So I don't see the whole freedom and liberty type of stuff that we preach over here and our civil liberties and all that stuff is being very, I don't know, democratic. I think that we have a very authoritarian government. Yeah. I think a lot of people would agree with you. And I think a lot of people, you know, that are not on my side of the ideological aisle, like Robbie would also agree with you. And I think that's why there was a lot of pushback against the end of Trevor Noah's speech where he basically chided, journalists for not understanding that they have so much freedom to say what they want to say and that they should use their pulpit wisely in the service of the democracy that we all benefit from. I think you're right. right. That's, I think, yeah. That's kind of what I'm talking about. I'm talking about as long as you agree to live in a society and have a governmental structure, 
then someone has to have the ability to act on authority. They have to have the ability to I think the difference to your question about what makes, you know, isn't, isn't there something inherently authoritarian in a government because it has, you know, an enormous amount of power is that Mm -hmm. the, the point, the ostensible point was to have checks and balances and to have a real democracy. Now, we all know that America wasn't designed for those checks and balances to actually be equally weighted because the founding fathers wanted to conserve power on landowning uh-huh. white men, you know, landowning white men were the only people who could vote. The Senate was specifically designed so that it was uh, aggregated power in these rural states and concentrated power in ways that could make it very difficult for there to be a direct democracy. We don't have a direct democracy. But ostensibly, when people say they want something that's less authoritarian, I think what they mean is for there to be accountability accountability via a democratic yeah. process. Not that there shouldn't ever be an aggregation of power because I think right. – I mean if you believe at all in the kind of notion of federalism or the notion of a government, you have to – you believe that there is a utility in concentrating power so you can do big projects that only can happen on a national scale like a national infrastructure system. Yes. And, and just by the way, it's kind of like, I, I wish I could have gotten on your nationalization episode. It's like, whenever you were talking about that type of stuff, I'm like, Hey, here's another, here's another argument that we could do. Nationalize the oil, reduce taxes. Yeah. I if forgot we did that episode. Oil. I'm like really happy I did that episode. I've been covering some good, <laughs> some good topics. There are a lot of other things we could nationalize. Think about how many things make so much profit in this country and if you really want to get people, all these people that are like, what tax the rich? That's heresy. Okay, fine. Compensate companies, take over the company, now create all the profit for the state, dole that out in social services, whatever it is, reduce taxes. You don't even have to tax the rich. Just nationalize the industry. Yeah, and I and I really do strongly feel like we have to be having those conversations because that is the yeah. kind of pressure. You know, we're having really like, you know, elementary level, you know, student lower, lower cancel student debt is like the lowest of bars. And if we were having a more substantive conversation on, I don't know, May Day about nationalizing major industries, especially when there was an appetite for it in the context of the pandemic, you know, I remember seeing an article at the beginning of the pandemic about how it was costing more to save the airline than to bail it out. Like it would be cost less to buy the airline than to bail it out. And thinking the obvious well, why not buy it? That just seems like a waste of money. <laughs> like, if you told me that I, I had a car that was only worth $10,000 and it cost $20,000 to fix it, I would not sink the money in the car. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's kind of exactly what I'm talking about. Like, I wish that our government took a more stance that was like, do you need a bailout? You can have a bailout, but now we're the majority stakeholder. Yeah. Like, period, end of story. Yeah. We, we are... We control it. Yeah. But then you'd have to have a non-corrupt government, which is a whole other conversation. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. Thank you for that, Shelly. I feel like I've been yeah, very, so um, I'm really enjoying all of the callers and I've been perhaps being too indulgent and in spending time here. And I'm yeah, realizing that we're, no, it's not I your just, fault. It's it's hundred percent me. I'm hearing myself do it. And so that's just an, an out loud note to myself to try to move with a little bit more alacrity. Um, no, that that was literally me like saving up comments from like seven <laughs> episodes and not calling in just to not monopolize. So I'll get off. Well, no, I appreciate I appreciate you, and I'm glad that I was able to like pick you from the queue because I didn't recognize you know I, you're not like a regular, and I wanted to make sure to get you in here. And you know I'm always trying to do a little bit gender balance. Oh. Mm-hmm. Bye um, everyone. Thank Good you, Shelly. Bye bye. All right. Um, 
let's go with Amir. What's on your mind this evening? Hi, I just wanted to say, Ray, that um, you're saving um, Rising or The Hill, yeah, The Rising Show. Uh, you're making Robbie tolerable. Uh, the fact Stop. that he's trying to make you laugh so hard and then you're laughing, it just makes the show, you know, tolerable again, like I said. Um, so I think I'm agreeing with Rika who said that earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just, I do have a, one question just that came from the conversation that I've listened to. Um, do you think that there is, it's a necessity to have money equal power? I mean, I have a... I'm more of an anti-work oriented. I've shared a little video in the conversation, but it probably went down real fast. Um, it's a channel on YouTube called St. Andrewism, or I think he changed it to Andrewism, and he has a really great video about anti-work, uh, not the subreddit, um, you know, meme platform, but the actual philosophy. And I feel that, I don't know, I feel that we're giving away power with, Money doesn't have to equal power. I mean, if we had solidarity, if, if we were organized, here's a thought experiment. Like, what if we just 99% of the population decided to change the values of the dollars to the pen, to the cents and the cents to the dollars, right? Nobody can stop it. You know, like, it doesn't matter what millionaires want. If you go to the grocery store and your pennies are worth the dollars and vice versa, and everybody agreed to it, they can't stop it. If, you know, like if the whole chain of, you know, consumers, you know, or the, this all chain of uh, whatever um, supply chain, you know, like mm-hmm. if it, so I guess my, my question is like, what can we do to maybe break that? I think we're prisoners in our own mind a bit. Like I, you know, I, I, I no question that money is a necessity and all that, but to completely give up and throw our arms up because somebody is a billionaire and, you know, like, that's not power. You can't eat those billions. If if we get a you know a solar mass ejection, you know, and the power grid gets shut down, all this Bitcoin is worth nothing. You know, the world is going to a completely different state of affairs, and it doesn't matter how many bills you have in the bank. Good luck eating those. I'm an, you know like I'm trying to be a regenerative farmers. I think my life will be a lot better than any billionaire who's sitting in some tower and you know you know in Fifth Avenue. You know, if they can't mm-hmm. go to the store and buy food, who's going to who's going to need who? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I don't know. I just would love your opinion if it if it, it's not fitting this conversation. No, that's a can... that's a fascinating thought experiment. I would love to run that past like a Giannis Varoufakis or a Richard Wolf or somebody like that. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I I'm sitting here listening to you and thinking I want to just I kind of want to read that book. I want to read the book where the social conditions change such that money is worthless and we're really finding out the true value of everybody's knowledge, whether that gender studies degree or whatever is suddenly useful to people, whether or not the person who can cook and, and skin a animal or knows how a, to turn the hydroelectric plant back on after the apocalypse, whatever it is, someone who can farm, someone who can sew, um, you know, someone who remembers and can recite Poetry, someone who can teach mathematics, you know, someone who can care for the elderly or knows how to put an IV drip in. I don't know. Like, I, I kind of would love to see that world. And what does it do all those cars in the in the in the parking garage or rockets to the moon amount to at the end of the day? Yanis would be the perfect person because he writes books like he writes fiction based on those 
ideas that he has. He kind of, you know, so you, you should have him as a guest. Uh, I'm sure he has, be I, he's been on, he's been on once and we had like such a lovely time and he was on a time constraint. It was, I, yes, it was short. It was it, not like a, it was short. I got the feeling like he wanted to stay and talk more once we got going. Like he was really enjoying the conversation, but I could be projecting because that's what I wanted it to be. Invite Robbie <laughs> to make you laugh, and you will want to stay. You know. <laughs> yeah, so I'm gonna. I'm de- I'll definitely um, reach out again because I think that he'll make more time for us. Um, One comment: How mm-hmm. come is it so predictable when you see Robbie's radar, or if you see Sagar? you'll know that the same radar, like they do the same kind of monologue. Every time there's some culture war or something, you can, you can watch one and you don't have to watch the other, you know? Well, like, there's, a, there's an appetite for it. <laughs> and look, I, I will say like being on the show and, and, and confronting those arguments on a regular basis that I don't personally seek out often, right? Like my personal feeling about COVID was, I don't want to get COVID. <laughs> I live by myself and it's pretty easy for me to like isolate and I have enough money to afford a KN95 mask. And so that's what I'll do because it's no skin off my back. So that being my personal decision, I don't really care or whatever information comes down the pike. I don't really care about mandates. I don't have any kids in school. I don't have to think about the difficulty of it. Not because I have strong opinions on it, just because it's not my business. It's not, it doesn't affect my life because at the end of the day, I live by myself in a hermetically sealed cube being confronting them every day you know it's interesting it is interesting to see that they're right often about some of the inconsistencies in covid messaging and there it does you know it doesn't make sense and while i would argue that it doesn't make sense so you should make it more stringent in certain ways not in a man not necessarily because of mandates because again i'm a little wary of that but by helping people to be compliant by shipping people masks, allowing people to stay at home, work from home, giving people checks, all of those kinds of things. You know, I, I, I do think they're right to be upset about Fauci kind of making this show of not wanting to go to the correspondence dinner and then ultimately going to the pre-party. You know, that is, it's kind of messed oh, he up. Oh, did? he did go? Oh, yeah. I think that's going to be Robbie's radar a, tomorrow. I hope it's a super spreader <laughs> event, that place. You know, yeah. that would be... Yeah, I think that's Robbie's radar tomorrow. So, like, even though that's not my bag, like, I understand why people are so attracted to it. And I think it behooves us to understand what's motivating a lot of people's distrust in government, because that also bleeds into someone in, into a, a libertarian's, a, a conservative libertarian's view that, well, government is just useless because it's all these people that have been lying to us and the CDC has no credibility. And now there's this disinformation, you know, um, bizarre, whatever they're calling her, the woman who was singing you know, on that kind of cringe TikTok, you know, it's, oh I, it, I think it's useful. And I understand why people are attracted to it, even if I wish there were more weight on the substantive issues. And sometimes I feel like a broken clock. We're talking to some guy like we had on, uh, we had a guest today uh, to a panel that was talking about these Florida laws and uh, the don't take a laws and all of the Disney stuff and all that. And, you know, he was like, Democrats are stoking a, a you know, a culture war. Now, obviously I don't think that the Democrats have started this culture war, but there obviously has been a leftward shift in the culture that now there's a backlash too. And I, and they was like, well, you know, Republicans, this, you know, this is on Democrats. They started this Republicans, you know, want to focus on other things. I said, well, if Republicans want to focus on other things, why is there not more of a critique happening about the fact that Republicans in Florida voted for a $15 minimum wage and Republicans in office in Florida have been fighting it tooth and nail ever since that happened. 
You know, you can't you can't say that you care about populism and that you would rather be focusing on other things and that Democrats are making this a subject of conversation when you're ignoring the consensus in the state that is being attacked by the Republicans in charge. And I keep bringing up that one like stat because I think it's such an indictment. This, the sixty dollar, the sixty percent of Floridians voting for a fifteen dollar minimum wage is like the knockdown, dragged out proof of populism in the that we need because it's a it's a red Trump state. And the fact that there's been so much opposition to it and also silent on it by the conservative media that claims to care that they're real populists and the Tucker Carlson's and stuff, that is what we should be talking about and highlighting at every opportunity, in my view, because it really cuts through a lot of the BS out there and people pretending and posturing like they really care what the workers are all about. Absolutely. I think people capitalize. But I oh, keep... sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, 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 not at all. It's your show. <laughs> We're here for well. you. So. <laughs> No, I, I'm going on and on. I'm just, I'm just to say, like, I, I, I need more talking points, but it's hard for me to avoid, like, evade saying that exact thing. The same way people are like Brianna, stop talking about student debt. I'm talking about student debt because there's no, you don't have any response to me with respect to the fact that Biden can do this by executive order. Like, you don't have a comeback. So if, why would I drop it? It's like the people who were mad about Bernie for talking about the same thing about 40 years. The real reason that people were mad is not because they were bored. It's because they didn't have a response to the clear moral arguments that he was making. And so I go back and forth. I, I do think that there are – I find those radars, frankly, to be interesting. Obviously, the people find them to be interesting because they get a lot of clicks and views. And again, to the earlier caller's point, I forget who it was. Maybe it was Rika who was uh, you know, saying, asking me how to make the decision to engage with those things, the culture war things. It's tough, but I have a hard time ignoring it when there's so much of an appetite for that. And so many people are defining themselves ideologically through that lens. I agree. I, I'm gonna let go. I, I I just gonna say that I it's I think it's a the fact that so many capitalize on this sociopathy in society, like on the worst. There's nothing wrong with talking about those the culture wars, but it's always that it brings this you know that that this complete hatred of the other side. It doesn't lead to a listening or to a an attempt to work forward. It's just like bringing the the worst of the edges, the people that are not willing to listen, they get activated. It, you know, if it was something that was more, it was presented in a way that people that are reasonable and, and understand that people have different opinions and different views and want to find that to bridge it, then it would be useful. But, you know, like it seems to be like, like you said, for clicks. And if you get clicks, it's almost like automatically you can tell that you've activated the wrong audience. Like, you know, like it's almost like a, direct relationship so but i thank you for your time i love you and i you know just seeing you laugh is like the best part of the show and seeing how much robbie tries to make that happen you know it's really makes it watchable you're so sweet thank you for calling <laughs> amir all right let's hear from karen c what's on your mind tonight karen hi brie can you hear me i can oh good um, thank you for having Sparky on. I love it when he's on. Um, he's one of my favorites. Um, so student debt <laughs> is on my mind all the time anymore. Um, and it feels to me, it feels like we are becoming part of the majority. So, mm -hmm. I mean, maybe I live in, I know I live in a bubble, like my, at least a social media bubble. <laughs> no, I think you're, I think you're right. <laughs> the polls say that you're right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, in my real life, I don't talk about student debt with people other than with my brother, because I know he and I both have student debt. Um, but I, you know, for the years, you know, I started out as a teacher 
so I didn't make a lot of money. Like mm-hmm. my first year working as an adult, you know, my salary was significantly lower than my student loan debt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I grew up poor and I just didn't think anything of it. And I didn't think about debt, whatever, you know, I just didn't even pay attention to it. All I cared about was month to month. Um, and then I, I taught for a number of years, then I went into the corporate world and then, you know, I'm suddenly surrounded by people who seem pretty affluent, you know, and just don't even think about month to month, um, uh, you know, budgets mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it became something shameful that I couldn't, I wouldn't even talk about cause everybody else had already paid theirs, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So I appreciate you, um, being willing to talk publicly. I, I don't think you're a poster child for, you know, I personally am glad that you share your debt and are willing to talk about it. So screw those people. <laughs> you hear that everybody in the rising comment section? Screw you. <laughs> Bunch of jerks. Um, so, uh, and then regarding the $10,000 versus the interest, um, mm-hmm. I agree with Sparky. It's really hard to determine how much interest you've paid. I, especially if you've consolidated. Mm. Um, and I consolidated in 2001. And again, I wasn't paying attention. I just consolidated. So I have no idea how much I spent prior to that. But I did find through Navient, you know, that I, I had a spreadsheet I downloaded. So I have spent $25,000 in interest. So <laughs> so for, for me, the interest, I think like you, would benefit me more. Oh, yeah. I paid $18,000 in interest the first year I paid my loans. Just one year? In Jesus. one year. It was $5,000 to the principal, 18000 in interest. And I, I, when I opened, it was like whatever the w, whatever the tax form is that tells you your interest payments. I remember yeah. opening it, and then I, like, I've never had this happen to me in my life. I dropped to my knees. Like I was in like a a movie (laughs) and I just started crying because I didn't know what to do. I hated my job so much and I didn't know what, like I couldn't, I was like, I cannot leave this. I can never leave because what am I going to (laughs) do? Um, so yeah, it's a real bummer, man. Yeah. I, and the one thing, if they were to, I wonder if like more conservative people might be more on board with that idea and consider it to be more fair. If you say, okay, from now on, student debt is interest-free, and then we're going to refund just the interest, you know, it would benefit more people. And I wonder if all the libertarians out there (laughs) would maybe be more on board with that philosophically. Um, Yeah, the the thing is, like, for me personally, that would be great, right? Because I've paid... It, again, it's hard to figure out, but just based on like some quick back of the envelope math, I've paid my principal. Like yeah. at this point, or if I haven't, if it then I, because of the pause, I have enough now saved to go ahead and like top it off, whatever it is. And so for me, if the if the goal was if this if the strategy if the policy was no one you're has to be more than their again. principal. Think, oh, I'm sorry. I see what it is. I think you're cutting out. It's my playing games. Like I can read the chat. I really want to read the chat. And I think, <laughs> oh, this time it's gonna be okay, and it's never okay. Um, oh. But I think uh, for me, so that works. But I'm, again, more lucky than other people. I have been able to make reliable dents in my principle over time because I have been lucky enough to have jobs that have been, enabled me to do so. A lot of other people whose balance have, has been growing over the course of their life, that does nothing for them. Yeah. Right? So I'm not going to sit here and advocate for a policy. Like for me, yeah, if the, if the rule is you never have to pay more than your um, original balance, 
like that's great. But a lot of people are so far off from that or mm-hmm. that that's equivalent to being on a 25 year payment plan anyway. I, you know, that's, that's not, that's not enough. That's not enough. And some people have said things like, oh, well, it should, they shouldn't issue you the loan if it's, it, it should be geared toward your likelihood of getting a job, you know, increasing your, your ability to earn an income the same way that, you know, to get a mortgage on a house, you know, to, to get a, a loan for a business or whatever, you have to be able to demonstrate you have collateral. This is the likelihood the business is going to succeed, all of these kinds of things, which completely undermines the whole point of education. And again, gets us squarely on this idea of the great reason to go to college is to prepare yourself professionally. Yeah. And that's a, that's a, I was having a conversation with a friend today about whether or not you should be fighting that battle in the moment. Cause someone like Sparky would say, and I agree a hundred percent ideologically that's not the point of college and we don't want to go down that road. But it is also true that a lot of people feel very strongly about that being what makes college worthwhile. And certainly if the government's going to be getting involved to pay for it, it's because we want to, to the earlier caller's point, have engineers and stuff that can compete with folks in China and these other high achieving, you know, science countries and stuff. Yeah. And that- do we want to fight that moral battle at the same time we're trying to fight student loans or should we just pivot and say, okay, look, it's socially beneficial for people to go to college because we need STEM degrees and we need doctors. So they should pay for it. I agree with you. They should pay for it because of that reason. It's, it's hard. I feel like we're in a little bit of a new situation dollars being like seeming increasingly like it's going to be the thing that derails the more stuff substantive movement for cancellation. Yeah. The whole thing about wanting to uh, increase the number of STEM uh, people, though, I, I think that our biggest need is going to be care work in the in the future. We're going to mm-hmm. need more people willing to take care of elderly people. And back to Amir's point, I think we're going to need more people who can grow vegetables. And I think mm-hmm. we're going to need more people who can, you know, build things. <laughs> so yeah. if we were truly like spending the money on things we value and we need, I, I just I'm kind of down with Amir and um, and then and uh, Rika to a to a point, you know, the whole anarchist perspective of like mm-hmm. being more, what can we contribute to society like meaningfully? Not, you know, I am now, I used to be a teacher. I used to be like helping and mold youth. And now I code things. Now I'm a software engineer. So it's like, I totally gave more to my community back then mm-hmm. than I do now. But you, what do you want? Like a whole bunch of people who can program? Mm-hmm things do you want like do you want like oh i will create a robot who will take care of your elderly grandmother like is that mm-hmm. what you want mm-hmm. um yeah it's, it's fascinating crazy. so i not to make every episode like brianna's adventures in dating <laughs> but i i've been seeing someone who happens to come from a very affluent family i've discovered um, and he is someone who you know got a phd in something that a lot of people would consider is useless right mm-hmm. <laughs> um and I watch him and how he navigates his life. And I see him doing all these things for which there is no like monetary value. You know, because he was a PhD student, he bakes a lot of bread. Aww. It's delicious. <laughs> you know, he goes on long walks with his dog. He teaches, you know, he teaches high school. He's substitute teaching while he's waiting to walk, you know, uh, to graduate officially. You know, he... And and some somebody might look at his life, and he's able to do that, by the way, because he's not really concerned long term in his ability to earn money, right? Like, because mm-hmm. he's got the cushion. 
And I, there's a part of me that's a little resentful of it, but there's a part of me that is like, oh, well, this isn't this kind of what we should be aspiring to? Like, this is what it looks like when you're designing your life to kind of just maximize. You're taking piano lessons, you know, this is what it looks like to maximize your life to like generally be a good, wholesome person and maximize your benefit to the community and to like be able to have the bandwidth to teach on the side and to, to take on different kinds of tasks and to be a good parent like he wants to be and all these kinds of things. We should all be able to act like the trust fund guy. <laughs> yeah. We should be able to, be able to design our lives to what we really want to do. And like, as opposed to what he would be doing if he were like me, which is what he would have gone to law school and been a corporate lawyer. And it just is insane to me that we would look at that example and not want to replicate it and have that available to everyone, regardless of whether or not their parents have money. Yeah. The world would be a better place if we had more of that guy. Cause he sounds, that sounds wonderful. Yeah, he's all right. We'll see. I don't <laughs> oh, okay. I don't well, I, I, I'm happy for his life. His <laughs> life sounds wonderful. Um, I'm going to let you go, but can I recommend one Netflix show to you? Please. Um, okay. So there is an Italian series called the astrological guide for broken hearts. I'm in. And it is delightful. It is, it's just a two season um, series. I think it was like six episodes per series. And it's about a woman, you know, at first she doesn't believe in astrology, but then this guy befriends her. And every episode is where she tries to date somebody from a different astrological sign. Oh my it's God. really fun. It's just, it's just fun. And I thought maybe you might enjoy it. So that's uh, The Netflix window is open on my computer and I will be queuing one of these up after I log off and start awesome. uh, doing okay. my face mask It's routine. easy to binge. So, okay, cool. Well, you'll have to watch the subtitles because it's in Italian. So. Oh, mon dieu. See, that's the <laughs> issue. I, there's so many things I haven't watched because I like to multitask and they have subtitles. Oh, shoot. But oh, shoot. I'll figure, okay. I'll, I'll figure it out. Maybe I'll watch it with um, Trust Fund Bay. Ella. Oh, fine. I shouldn't call okay. it. Okay. I'm, I'm ruining everything. I'm being terrible. Okay. Thank oh. you, Karen. Oh, yes. Thank you for everything. <laughs> All right. We love you. Bye. All right. Bye. Love you too, Karen. You guys are so sweet. Love you guys. Okay. Um, who did I just call up? Brian. Love a Brian. Fun fact. My mom was very confident that I was going to be a boy and that was going to be my name. So unmute yourself, brother in arms, and tell me what's on your mind. Sure. Can you hear me? I can. Awesome. Awesome. I'm glad to be here. I'm glad to have you, Brian. What are you thinking about this evening? Is it student debt? Is it the fact that I ended row? <laughs> is it the Nina Turner race tomorrow? Is it the correspondence? Ooh, that's definitely dinner? on, on my mind. mind. But uh, uh, well, I kind of wanted to talk about the student debt and kind of uh, kind of elaborate on what you're talking about a little bit with your first speaker and a little bit what you were just talking about. So my a little bit of a personal story. So like with my student debt, I was very afraid of student debt when I was going to school, just because I come from a, a pretty poor family in rural Minnesota and. My mom, she was an atypical student, so she went to school after I, all the kids were born and all that. Um, and so she has a lot of debt. And I grew up like seeing that and seeing my brothers and sisters since I'm the youngest, mm. getting a lot of their debt. Um, so yeah, when I started school, I was very conscious of that and mm. really tried to work hard on not getting a lot of debt. Um, but I did have during school, I had my appendix burst and I had to pay mm. for that and had some medical debt to go with. So I did end up taking out some debt. Mm. Um, but, you know, while I was in school, I was working full time, you know, working at the Dairy Queen, working at a Starbucks for a little while, working at a wood mill during the summers to pay off the debt. And I get a lot of when I talk to a lot of my, you know, my family's pretty big and there's a lot of conservative members of my family. And when I talk to them about student debt, 
they're always like, you know, I, I have $10,000 in student debt. You know, I was able to pay off pretty much everything except for that last year where I had that medical emergency. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and they're, they're always, they talk about like, well, since you paid it off, that kind of argument, you know, you, you were able to do it or more or less able to do it. Mm-hmm. So why do you expect, why don't you expect other people to do it? And I just don't understand that argument. I was going to see what you think. I, I know I have a feeling you're going to probably what you're going to say, but like, I just don't understand that. Cause like the kids that are going to be growing up and like my brothers, you know, he's got, I got nieces and nephews and I got some of my cousins are having kids and you know, they're going to have the same type of fears that, you know, a lot of this generation has with student debt mm-hmm. and I don't want that. So I don't really understand this argument of why they, you know, why would you would want to burden the youth and your loved ones? And even like my mother, like she still has, you know, close to $80,000 in student debt, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's been paying on that since she, you know, 15 years. So like, why yeah. would I not want to help with that situation? <laughs> yeah. I think that's such an important point. Several points. One, that the very people, you know, a lot of people are like, why not medical debt? Obviously, yes, I would prioritize that. Can't be done by executive oh, yeah. order. Although the um, Sparky did say that they're working on various mechanisms, you know, yeah. to advocate for that. That's too. awesome. I love that. But the bigger, the other point is that a lot of the people who could be helped by medical debt issues also have student debt. If you can't touch the medical debt, at very least you can help them with this other kind of debt. And the idea that these are like completely separate populations is silly, given how popular both those kinds of debt are. So that's one. And two, this other multi-generational point you're making, where so often this is characterized as an issue with kids, these college kids. One, I'm damn near 37 years old, so I'm nobody's kid. Moreover, my mother also resolved i remember when i was going to college she was like yeah i'm just paying the minimum till i die like she was not that's that's my mom's (laughs) plan as well yeah yeah and my my mother is someone who had to take a year off of college and you know took a an extra you know five years to graduate because she didn't couldn't make a 400 dollar balance at howard and whereas Mm. some schools you know for all its faults harvard doesn't hit up for money and they're very generous about like extending deadlines and stuff like that they're not the kind of school that's going to not let you walk because of a pending balance but howard isn't like that and so a lot of people would have been derailed from college altogether having to take a gap year just be over four hundred dollars you know so I, i appreciate you bringing both of those points up because i i really resent the idea that we're ignoring that this is a multi generational crisis and even people who don't have parents with student debt and don't themselves have student debt should be very concerned about the fact that when I went to college, uh, you know, private college was about $40,000 a year. Now it's like 60 or $70,000 a year and God help us what it's going to be in 15, 18 years, however it's going to, how long it is before your kids are matured. You know, and that was another thing that you brought up in the interview today that I really, I really liked the, your guest you had on and the interview today. But, you know, you're talking about the systemic project problems with, you know, like, I forget what the exact argument that you use or what he used, but, you know, that, you know, the one time payment of, you know, 10 grand, 10 grand or whatever Biden is planning to, you know, or may not, I don't know who, mm-hmm. who knows, you know, but, uh, you know, that wouldn't fix the systemic issues with the education system. But, you know, and correct me if I'm, you know, misinterpreting this, but, you know, like, even if that's like the end goal is to have free college. And, you know, even if you started it now, you, you know, the, that debt is going to be paid off if you start a free college program, you know, and, and if the, you know, you start doing free state or public schools um, and that kind of thing. So, you know, 
that argument that you know, you know, one one-time payment is not going to make a difference in the systemic problems. Well, that's definitely a step in getting into the right direction. Mm-hmm. And that was like a really important to me because you know that argument was probably the strongest one that I had problems recognizing or dealing with. And when I heard you guys talk about the day, I was like, wow, that was really. That's such a good point. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Sparky is just, he's so great. Like, I just, I can't, I have like a weird, I'm such a fangirl for Sparky Abraham. It's ridiculous. And I think I, you guys all, I'm hearing it from you guys too. There's just something that's so sincere and earnest and also knowledgeable about him. I mean, he's he's right about that. It does start to open the floodgates a little about the fact that the government can just give you money. It can just cancel your debt. It can just help you. And there is the potential that instead of, undermining the fight for broader cancellation the ten thousand dollars does incite us to do more now i'm a little wary of that i gotta say i'm a little skeptical and i know how you know the messaging from these people is insane and we've come a really long way because the pandemic gave us pressure the moratorium gave us pressure and i'm a little afraid of what footing we're on if the moratorium is to end i am afraid i'm gonna just acknowledge that but i also don't want to take away what you're saying which is true that Doing $10,000 is meaningful for a lot of people, depending on how it's implemented, because the man knows how to means test something into nothingness. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, that's it one thing be, that yeah. really makes mm-hmm. me worried, too, because like means testing, you know, I'm 27 right now. And I just this is my first I, I actually just started a new position. and It's my first actual full time job I've, that I was able to get. And I'm like, oh, man, if he does means test it, I really hope he looks at last year's taxes or I, mm-hmm. I hope he does it soon. So I have mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Isn't that so perverse? <laughs> Isn't that so, I, yeah. I, I was thinking that too. I was like, okay, well, I was unemployed for 2020. So <laughs> like, yeah, like, what does this look like for me? And that's what's so arbitrary and stupid about all of this. It's yeah, so dumb. Man. And also the person who's earning a lot right now could become unemployed tomorrow. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that again, again, no, I'm the least sympathetic figure in the world, but that was always my concern. When I guys, when I tell you guys that I was the world's worst lawyer, <laughs> my heart was not in it. And I was constantly getting these warnings about not billing enough hours and all of this stuff. And I would like have to hustle it up for three months and get on the good side of things. And then inevitably I would be spending my whole day at work writing articles for the guardian and not doing my work. <laughs> and I'd get another <laughs> warning about how my hours were low. And I, I just, I felt like any day they're going to fire me any day. They're going to fire me. And I felt like I don't know what I'm going to do if that happens because the debt is still there. And there are yeah. other jobs that I want to take and other jobs that I prefer to do. And ultimately, I obviously was able to leave and join The Intercept. But I got to tell you guys, honestly, that was a, a $70,000 pay cut when I went to work at The Intercept. Ouch. And, and I, it was a very well-paying journalism job. It was, I, I'm not complaining about it at all. It was, it was my salvation, and I'm so grateful for that job. And it was a very well-paying job. But that gap represented a lot in terms of my ability to save my 401k and pay my loans. And I stopped doing both of those things when I joined the intercept, you know, that's, that's how I made up the difference. I stopped contributing to my 401k and I, I, I lowered my loan obligation based on my income. Yeah. Well, I don't want to take it too long, but I do have one more kind of question that I had jotted down here. Yeah. Um, so for Bernie 24, I'm going to bring it up. Like, this is, uh, you had a podcast the other, or it was actually a call-in a couple, a couple call-ins ago. You were talking to somebody and you did this absolutely, I want to give you as much credit as I can give you. You did this absolutely great mock Bernie speech. You're like, <laughs> we're going to, you know, we're going to kill it to the corporations. I'm going to go independent. You know, you were doing a fantastic job. Ha- Italian fingers, I'll tell you what, right there. <laughs> 
may want to go get a 2024 Bernie sticker like after I heard that. So, but you know, the whole Bernie 2024 thing, it it's really like me and several of my close family members were really on Bernie train, you know, both in 2016 and and, and 2020. Um, and man, in 2020, when it happened, when when you know, bloody t- bloody Tuesday or whatever, bloody Monday happened. You know, that was really hard. And and I mean, like we haven't, me and my brother were really talking about politics a lot. And, you know, when Bernie did that announcement about the 2024, we, I, I called my brother and like, we talked about it for probably three hours and we were just really excited about the possibilities of, of him running again. But I just, I, I don't want to be manipulated because, you know, I hear that, but then I don't really want to have another, you know, catastrophic failure and then you know use that kind of for the for the establishment to use that for like you know getting out the vote in november even though they're not going to potentially do anything after you know so i'm really skeptical on that and i, I just i don't know i don't want your advice on a, a a severe bernie fan on what do you think i should do in this situation <laughs> oh man except aside from you know root for nina tina tina and nina turner yeah. and all those other ones that are are trying to i like uh, <laughs> I, so much of this conversation, there are people who are like, no matter what anybody says, I'm against electoralism. I, I want to acknowledge those people exist and I respect that position. Sure. However, I think the bulk of the people are like, I'm begging, they're just saying, I'm begging you. I'm begging you to give me a crumb that I can hold on to that makes me believe That's in me, this baby. again. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right or wrong. And, and I see this when I talk to my friend, you know, Feeney, who's been on the podcast, who is you know with it works with RBN and, and is very sympathetic to these arguments about how the squad members have disappointed us but who's working for Michaela Wilkes who's a candidate that seems very authentic a kind of a working class Cory Bush type whom some people you know are hoping is the one is, is one of the people who can like stick the landing when they're in office now yeah. whether or not I believe that's the case whether or not you believe it's about individual grit or if it's about the institutional pressures and you know that's the ongoing conversation but even someone like Afimi is like well yeah I'm given the right candidate given they say the right things I'm still on board and that's what that Bernie speech was about right like the in the world where Bernie says all the things we want to hear I think a lot of people will get back on the Bernie train there are there are untold candidates who could Were you there? But honestly, there is a, a world where Nina Turner could have maybe incited a little bit more enthusiasm by saying certain kinds of things. You know? Yeah. And and I and I've I've spoken. Uh, you know, being too apologetic for the squad on one hand, and these figures on the other hand, a lot of the electeds see me as. Um, asking them to appeal too much to the base in a way that is going to get them maligned in their districts, which mm. aren't necessarily as deep blue. And they see me as being um, impractical and unpragmatic. And I see will that, say this. I, I would disagree. Yeah. I, I think that there is a real case for it. I don't know what Nina Turner's fundraising is like. I don't have the insider track on that. But I suspect it's way less than it was last time around. And to me, it's like you're the whole value of you being Nina Turner is that you have a national fundraising base that Chantel does. Chantel has her corporations. You don't get to do that because you're a leftist. So what you do have is the power of millions of people who know who you are through the Bernie campaign. And that is the hardcore base that wants the red meat of half a bullshit. 
Now, <laughs> you can say you can say that the half a bullshit hurts you in Cleveland, but I, I hate to break it to you. Half a bullshit's already out there. It is what it is. So you can try to play nice and cover up for the half a bullshit comment, or you can lean into it and at least get enough money to to run enough ads to contextualize half a bullshit in a way that might actually resonate with the average Clevelander who lives in the largest poor city in America, who has now seen two years of the Biden administration being a whole bullshit, <laughs> <laughs> has all these failed promises, et cetera, et cetera. You only have the people when you're so well on the left. You only have the people. And maybe the people aren't enough, and maybe the people will try harder if they're not enough and give more, and we'll keep fighting. But but not putting faith in the people ain't it. And, you know, I really get frustrated when I hear the argument about, you know, those, you know, red district or, or not hard blue districts, you know, like, oh, that's not going to appeal to them. Uh, you know, like, I'll just take my district, for example. Michelle Fishbach is my current representative, unfortunately. And there's a lot of people here that, you know, they, they're not going to, they're either going to be voting Republican or they're, you know, you know, there's either that or the, the Democrats. But a lot of the Republicans, they're not going to be voting for a middle-of-the-road Democrat like they want to advertise. But there are more people there than you would think that would very heavily vote for Bernie Sanders. I believe Mike County, you know, voted, you know, for Bernie Sanders in the primary, even though Minnesota, unfortunately, uh, you know, did not go that route altogether. Um, so I know there's a demand for, you know, his kind of politics in, you know, rural Minnesota, like rural America in general. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it really makes me frustrated that they, they think that that doesn't have an appeal or, or the establishment doesn't have an appeal. Or they use that cop out anyways. But. Yeah. Yeah. And I will say even that Republican I mentioned earlier that I was having that really interesting conversation with mm-hmm. supports Medicare for all. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. yeah. I bet you he would have a lot of support in, you know, very poor regions of, you know, where I come from in Minnesota. So, yeah. 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 Well, well I'll you let for- you get on to the next <laughs> caller. Um, but I just wanted to say, uh, you know, keep up the good work. And, you know, if you ever do another dating episode, but those, those was podcast gold. Just saying. <laughs> that actually made me become a, a patron. So <laughs> oh, that's what did it. Okay. As, yeah. though, as though I needed any more encouragement to talk obnoxiously about my personal life. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. No problem. See you, Brian. See ya. Okay. Let's go with um, Andre because I tried to pull you up earlier and it didn't work. Let's see if this works this time. Can, can you unmute Andre? I don't know what's going on, Andre. I tried. I'll try again. Um, let's go with, uh, I called on you last time, Eric. I had it. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Oh, here we go. Hey, there you go. What's on your mind, Andre? Um, I just want to say, like, you know what? I really appreciate what you're doing. Um, this has been a really good episode, especially someone like myself who owes so much of student debt, it's really good to, um, it's cathartic to hear people talk about it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like I've been having a lot of conversations with my colleagues who are all pretty, um, you know, we're all accountants. We all do okay. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to see even those who do have debt have this attitude of, um, well, you took out the debt, you should pay for it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, or I've already paid off my debt. Why shouldn't I get something? And I was like, I, I always link it back to, all right, well, how do you feel about slavery? Because mm-hmm. where would I be right now if there was a whole bunch of people that said, no, wait, I suffered. Mm-hmm. So the rest of y'all better suffer for the next 30 years, too. Mm-hmm. Nothing can move forward. So if we're going to continue to have these kind of selfish kind of like, if I don't benefit from this, then what's the point? Mm-hmm. Then where are we going to end up? 
Yeah. I, I think about, I mean, I think the slavery analogy, I saw someone make a tweet to that effect on the internet and it's hard to argue with it. I saw someone I was reading, I don't know if you've been following any of this back and forth between Chris Hedges and Alice Walker and Alice Walker being banned for claims of anti-Semitism. It's a whole thing. I haven't fully unpacked the article, so I don't want to weigh in at this point, but you know, there's, you know, there were people talking about, you know, the tragedy of Anne Frank's life and how it was, you know, less than a year or approximately a year before the end of the war that they ended up dying. She and her sister ended up dying in in concentration camps. And like the, the idea that, the injustice, part of the injustice as of her story is like, it was so close. They got so close. They hit for all those years. They were so close. And like, I get it. Like it's, there's like a certain emotional resonance to the idea that you come up to the edge of something. Like you've, you've made the ultimate sacrifice. You've worked, you've toiled. Like I hear everybody in this chat, people with loans and without loans saying that they, it has impacted their life and they have done their darndest to pay it off. I haven't heard anyone, by the way, weigh in and say, yeah, I mean, you know, I don't really care. I just went on vacation a lot. Like, that's ridiculous. Like, that's not how it works. But so I, I understand emotionally why people have that feeling, but the idea that you wouldn't see how you would obviously benefit, like, who doesn't have, like, if I pay off my student loans, my brother, who didn't manage to finish his degree, still has loans. My mom has loans. My aunt has loans. You know what I mean? Who doesn't have loans? Who doesn't yeah. know someone or love someone who doesn't loans? Whoever I... Mary is likely to have loans. Yep. My kids are going to have yeah. loans because I'm telling you, mom's not paying for it. We're all going to be, you know, uh, rural farmers at this point. <laughs> like, if you, if you can even afford to have kids because you have loans. You correct. Know what I mean? <laughs> so correct. It's, uh, it's just a weird shackle that we all kind of um, have around our necks, either directly or indirectly. And yeah. it's just odd that people take this very, again, very selfish position because we don't realize that we're all standing on, you know, the shoulders of uh, giants, whether, you know, we recognize it or not. Like, where would we be if people said, like, you know what? I had to be a child worker. I had to work over 40 hours a week. You should do right. the same thing. Like, but it just doesn't seem to enter anyone's mind. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and, and, I, and I can't believe that these people are. I don't know. Maybe they are really all that selfish. That's why in the last call and I was like, I just have to vent about this because I'm like really depressed by the state of humanity. (laughs) And I think it is a lot bots. I was noticing today a pattern of very small follower accounts. Uh, You know, no one follows them. They follow a bunch of people and they're all tweeting about neoliberal stuff with, you know, Ukraine flag emojis or whatever. I was like, oh, okay, this is a bot mobilization. This isn't just organic. Don't get overwhelmed by all of a lot of the pushback, which is not real and there were some patterns in the comments on youtube that i was noticing i was like okay this is like coordinated <laughs> um but there are of course you know real people i spoke on on the episode today about a friend of mine from college who i see constantly i love the guy he's a great guy but he does non-stop lib tweets and he's a real believer in this stuff and he loves he's like a buddha judge kind of a guy and i don't yeah. i like i just I don't know. They're real. (laughs) No, I've I've come across a lot of people like that. Like for him and all the Elizabeth Warren supporters, I think for them, it's just a cadence that these people, because there's no substance there. You can't really point to any substantive policy, especially with Pete Buttigieg that he had, that you can say, like, I'm a supporter of him. It's just that he went to Harvard, speaks a certain way, and mm-hmm. that resonates with uh, a certain class of people. Because there's no one, like, you know, middle class or middle class or working poor that supports people to uh, judge. It's always 
upper class, higher educated people that are on that bandwagon. So I went to Harvard and nobody listens to me. <laughs> I, well, everybody, look at the look at the room right now. Everybody listens to you. Stop it. Oh, I kid. But I do. I think I do think that's a little bit why they hate me so much. And and Bernie too. I think it's hilarious the way that they always try to make Bernie into some like Vermont peasant creature. When he went to the University of Chicago, which is like the fifth best school in the country. I mean, I don't know what it was in 1963 or whatever, but it's always been like a, an elite institution. It just cracks yeah. me up. For business school, it's number one right now. Like it's yeah. on my list. So yeah, it's a, it's a great school. And I think it's easy to paint him that way because again, he speaks with a certain cadence. I don't think yeah. it's really about um, even the education or anything like that. I think is if you walk and talk and act a certain way. Like a great example of that is um the the, the dude who's in charge of the unions, uh Chris uh God, I can't remember his last name right now. Smalls. Um, thank you, Chris Smalls. Mm-hmm. He is like almost every dude I grew up with in my area, but he moves in such a way that resonates with everybody. But mm-hmm. if you look but if you looked at him you wouldn't believe that he'd be able to do that. Mm-hmm. So his cadence and the way that he comes across is why he's able to be effective. And I think that's the same thing you have like with the Bernie where, yeah, he went to the University of Chicago, but they can kind of paint him as, um, you know, some dude who's just screaming from the top of the mountain hill with nothing to really say, you know, because he has wild hair. Yeah. Yeah, in a, a $800 coat. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, if we're being really honest, he has a very Brooklyn Jewish type of accent. So it's like, He's not polished enough for them, but you know. Yeah. Well, what's so funny about that too is that he went to the same school as what, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and uh, oh yeah, Chuck yeah. Schumer and like Norm Finkelstein. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, so I it, know what they're putting it, in the water over there, but they need to bottle it, commodify it. Because <laughs> <laughs> he's, um, I mean, he's doing what he, they're, they're, like that's the problem that we're having. I think that's why a lot of people are losing kind of. Uh, favor with a lot of the, um, you know, pro- quote unquote progressives is it just seems like once you get into that field, you're supposed to allow yourself to be captured mm-hmm. and no and no shade against the squad. Like, you know, there's a lot of people there that I still support, but then um, you do notice that there's a change in their behavior and we're all human and we're all, you know, um, capable of being, um, you know, subject to those kind of pressures. But you do notice that there is a large difference that once those people go in, but he didn't have that. I mean, at least not to the same degree. He's still for the last over what 30 years, he's been saying the same thing, you know, Medicare for all, like, you know, um, uh, higher minimum wage. Like he's always been about the people. And I think that's why he's despised so much. It's like, you've been around this for this long and you ain't trying to take or try not to be a millionaire like the rest of us. Like what's wrong with you? Not what's wrong with us. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. I am with but, you, Andre. Mm-hmm. Sorry, were you breaking up? Oh, I was tempted to touch. And by tempted to touch, I mean I really wanted to look at the live chat. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, let me sneak and do it while, while Andre is talking and no one will be the wiser. And <laughs> you ended before I could close the window. I don't know if a call-in person is in here, but this is definitely a thing that's coordinated with me having the thing open on my computer. I'm not sure what that's about. It, this has not happened to me before. Just shout out to the call-in people who are often in here and are very helpful in fixing, fixing these tech issues. Well, no, no, I will totally let, like, uh, like I'm just going to close it out here because I'm just such a fan. I just want to listen to you uh, wrap up. 
But um, thanks again for having me on, and I appreciate the work that you do. Thank you, Andre. I really have enjoyed talking to you. Right, now, I I want to know what you guys think about the hopping around, because I can appreciate why if you're like Eric Smith, it's a real bummer because you've been sitting there in the one seat for a long time. But also Eric Smith, I talked to you last time. Jonathan, I talked to you a lot. Like, love your insights always. I see Day, who was a crowd favorite, and I'm inclined to want to click on him because I like talking to Day. I see Sylvester. We always have a good laugh. And I'm trying to resist my impulse to, like, play favorites <laughs> and also trying to get people who I don't recognize and I haven't spoken to before. But I also don't want people to feel like there's no benefit to getting in the queue I just, just know I haven't forgotten you and I'm not going to always penalize you for being early. I just am being, trying to be conscious of the fact that like Eric, Jonathan, no work, Chris, I've spoken to you, I think within the last episode. So I'm trying to spread it around a little bit. So let me go to, I, I did Captain Picard Willem too. Let's do Reverend Edmund. Cause I tried to call on you before and I saw you had a good comment about your own education in theology. Can you unmute yourself and let us know what's on your mind tonight? We're going to have the same technical issue we had before. Don't say I didn't try Reverend. Don't say I didn't try. All right, let's go with Matthew. I don't recognize Matthew Wolf. What's on your mind tonight? Let it be known. Let it be known that I'm I'm like giving it a Girl Scout try. How about you, Fahim? Fahim from the back. What's on your mind this evening? Hi, Bree. Uh, can you hear me? I can hear you. Oh, super. Uh, thanks for bringing uh, Sparky on. I've followed you all for a long uh, time from the current affairs uh, days and all. And I kind of miss uh, uh, listening to the whole crew. Uh, and all. Yeah, so, me too. Yeah, it, uh, was a, a good uh, crew and even though like I, I tend to be more facts oriented but uh, and at times when you guys would talk about uh, these monsters and this fictional thing and that fictional thing it would go over my head but it would still be like kind of fun to uh, listen uh, to that but uh, no I, I you know what uh, I, I graduated with a, my engineering degree back in the end of 99 uh, from uh, Austin and I just, uh, I mean, I'd like to know, uh, like, what the heck is the mentality of where, uh, of folks who just uh, say that, okay, I paid my loans, so why the heck should uh, others uh, not uh, do? And just for reference uh, purposes, you mentioned about 44, 45 uh, million uh, people uh, in debt, and we're talking about $10,000 uh, uh, payment uh, right now. And if you look at the uh, ease of how we are spending the uh, money on uh, Ukraine uh, right mm -hmm. now, uh, but 33 plus 13, that's 46 billion. That's mm -hmm. 46 billion if you divide it by, let's say, 46 million people, that's 10,000 right there. I mm -hmm. mean, that's 10,000 right uh, uh, there. And you don't look at you with the math. I haven't checked those numbers for him, but I am very well, impressed no, with your I mean, calculations. You don't even need a, a <laughs> scientific calculator for doing that. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's uh, but thing, I, I yeah. look at that and, and I'm like, I it blows me away. Of, uh, I mean, uh, when the heck are we going to have our own version of Arab Spring? Uh, and it's it's just crazy uh, for how. Uh, 
like I mean, of how it impacts uh, people, how like not having Medicare for all impacts uh, people. Because I am like, you know what? If we had Medicare for all, I I am good at what I do uh, and all, but at the same time, I'm like. I would quit and like raise goats and train dogs, mm-hmm. and that's mm-hmm. uh, uh, what I would uh, do. So, so yeah, I mean that was uh, the thing where I, I mean to me the big thing is I, I mean I came to the U.S. as an immigrant. I was eighteen, turning nineteen, and my last stop was in uh, in Pakistan. And when I and what was funny was when I was in Austin. Austin at that time was still very socially diverse. It wasn't too ethnically diverse, but very socially diverse. But then when I moved out to Southern California, I looked around and I'm like, this is becoming like Pakistan, where you are, you have like the super rich, and you have some middle class, and uh, and then uh, you have a, a lot of uh, folks. Uh, down at the bottom and over the years it has become worse and worse and worse and and i look at this and and i'm like you know this is for a country like the u.s it is such a dangerous thing because the u.s is a highly armed society and if things go south i'm like you have a uh, i mean we have a violent past over here and with so many people uh being armed and all i'm like this is uh, this can get ugly really uh uh fast and but my main question is like i don't know what i mean can you explain to somebody who didn't grow up over here of like what is the mindset behind this uh it's me 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 all the time i mean (laughs) i i i just i really don't uh, i get it i i it's just crazy so Oh, boy. Well, America, America, what what are the look? Well, first of all, I'll say I also grew up, spent a good time, amount of time overseas. And sometimes my own country is a mystery to me to date. I think it's it's weird. There is this idea of individualism that's really emphasized. There is this kind of um, history of having a Protestant worth at work ethic and a kind of Calvinist influence of diligence and keeping your head down and not expecting any kind of joys in this life and real, really like fetishizing toil, not just hard work. I mean, you know, people work hard. I, I, I'm listening to myself and I can't stop myself from actually buying into all of the stuff. But no, I mean, one of the things I'm thinking while you're talking about this, I'm like, okay, uh, how many people do you know are, are around who uh, uh, would speak in those terms of like, oh, we have a, we're a Calvinist background. Most average Jews would, uh, no Calvinism yeah well that's like the historical root of it right but I do think that that like that is baked into the DNA well people like I do think Americans because of that and because of that kind of legacy historical legacy don't question the way the French do where they'll pop off and do a they'll start flipping over tanks and dumping trucks of horse shit on a you know a parliament member's house because you know gas prices are too high 
and we'll have a whole ass pandemic and no one will even like leave their house, you know, or, um, you know, they'll, they, they, it's like illegal to like get a work phone call on the weekend in France and we're our away messages are like, okay, I'm going into labor at 7 PM, but I'll be reachable by 10. If you, you know, leave a message, you know? <laughs> so that is like this deeply American thing. And it's, it's funny. I've been playing with, in conversations with people, I've been playing with drawing on this other thing that Americans believe about themselves, which is that we are patriotic, that we are God-fearing and Christian, and that we take care of each other, and that Jesus says X, Y, and Z. And I don't lean into the Jesus stuff too much because it's obviously insincere. I wasn't raised Christian. But the stuff about, you know, when I said to this guy I was talking to today, like, well, look, if you just believe every man for themselves and we're all on an island – we just have a difference of opinion and I can't really dissuade you from that. But I believe that part of my patriotism as an American and being a part of this community is that we should all be looking out for each other and taking care of each other. And if there is enough money, which there are, which there is, if there are enough resources for us to take care of each other, I don't know why I would begrudge anybody that. And I don't know why I would try to be withholding as a person with non without kids of people who have kids. We live in a society. Those kids are going to grow up and become the tax base that pays for my um, retirement, you know, like this is, we, we're all in this together and isn't that a beautiful thing? And people tend to pause at that because it draws on a different kind of moral tradition that they know it sounds gross to be like, no, fuck that. I'm an Island. And and I hear people trying to negotiate that in their head, but no one ever talks about that. But Bernie did right. Bernie <laughs> talked about the moral terms of all of this. Bernie had people stand up in a crowd and talk about their medical debt and erase the shame and stigma and say, it's not your fault. We live in a society that has, you know, that puts profit, corporate greed over the ability to eat, for you to keep your life or your daughter or your son or your neighbor alive. And that was really affecting to people. And so I don't think oh, America no. is all bad. I think there's different traditions that we can start to try to draw on. But right now, the greed is good thing is being really pressed by all the Buddha judges of the world and the Laura Ingrams of the world. Well, no, and, and the thing, and like when people talk about the fact of uh, like, well, then uh, why would you uh, go and get a history degree? Why would you go and get this degree? It's not, uh, uh, it's a useless uh, thing. And, and and I at times look at this and I look at like, for example, our media figures. And I'm like, what the, if you think that those degrees and all are useless, I'm like, look at these uh, uh, guys. I mean, none of these uh couldn't uh, if I put them in a field, uh, they wouldn't know how to grow shit. Uh, they wouldn't <laughs> even know how to. Uh, to uh, even if I handed them a chicken, they wouldn't know how to what to do with it. Uh, <laughs> and so, so, so I mean that part of um, I it's it's just such a convoluted uh, uh, thing, and and it's it's very de uh, depressing to uh, see of, of what we're doing. And the other day I got a text from Bernie as a campaign uh, thing of uh, like, what can Bernie say to uh, for you to donate? Uh, I was about to respond saying, say cut the Pentagon and not a 5% uh, shave. I'm like, shave the mm -hmm. damn thing uh, off because we ended up spending about 2.3 uh, trillion in Afghanistan. Out of that, 2.1 was towards military contractors. 
and doctors apparently uh, to get a medical degree costs about 400,000 which to me personally mm-hmm. is ridiculous mm-hmm. and and i and the us doctor population is about a million and so i'm like okay we could have taken 400,000 let's say we use that uh, number and take 2.1 uh, trillion that we spend we could have added uh, over 5 million doctors in the us Mm. Uh, without any uh, loans, anything, and mm. and have these doctors have our own version of Henry Reed Brigade that Cuba has, mm. uh, and and I'm like, uh, and what are we doing spending on uh, 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 this and. So, but that's uh, my part. By the way, but just a recommendation on this whole uh, uh, spending on arms and all. It would be lovely to see, like, uh, you have somebody who is from the military, like a Matthew Ho or a Danny, uh, Danny Serge and, uh, and all to uh, connect with that. Because at the end of the day, who bleeds? I mean, it's the, it's the farmer who's being sent to kill uh, a farmer. Uh, yeah. So it would be nice to uh, connect uh, the uh, part because I think the a lot of civilians they don't uh, uh, it's just this gut reaction of uh, uh, like thank you for your service uh, and instead of saying that hey I'm sorry I I didn't I kept my mouth shut uh, and, and not speak up when we uh, sent you to bleed for, for nothing. Yeah, look, please do drop. I, I've been like really bad about now that I'm doing, you know, rising, I feel a little overwhelmed and I'm not doing a good job of booking in advance. Now my schedule is tighter, you know, and I need to basically make sure I record on a Monday or a Friday. And I have been scrambling a little bit the last couple of weeks. So I am taking all your suggestions and like mass emailing. And I love, so I love to get the suggestions. If you could say those, if you could write those names to me in a message on this app. Oh, yeah, yeah. And if you have any contact information, please share. Absolutely. And Matthew, by the way, is running in North Carolina for a North Carolina Senate under the Green Party. Oh. uh, Yes. uh, Matthew Ho. Uh, He was uh, with the State Department, HOH. Oh, okay. Because I Googled Matthew Ho and it wasn't, it just H-O and it wasn't coming up. Yeah, yeah. No, no, not H-O. It's uh, Got it. Got it. Got it. So, but uh, thank you again. And um, yeah, uh, for taking my call and um, yeah, love listening to you. So thank you so much, Fahim. Welcome. Okay. okay. Bye bye. I have done, you know, two two plus hours, and I really should get my act together because I have to do a little bit of exercise and get in bed. I got four hours of sleep last night because I'm very bad, very bad at being a morning show person. But I'm trying to write this ship. So let me make Savannah the last caller. So unmute yourself, Savannah, and let me know what's on your mind. Bring it home for the people. Hi, Brie. Oh, my God. I'm, like, so embarrassed right now. Um, <laughs> don't don't be. I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Um, so I've been listening to you for a while, and I've, like, kind of just been, like, waiting for the right time to, like, actually call in. But um, I kind of just wanted to comment on the White House Correspondence Center. Mm-hmm. Um, I just really thought that it just felt like Trevor just made himself look ridiculous. Mm. Um, like he was just saying things that I felt like even the crowd 
like that he was speaking to, they were just like, yeah, like this message is not for us. Like this isn't even real. And it almost felt like he was like, to me, I'm listening and I'm, and I'm who are you talking to? Like, what, what is this imaginary world that you're coming up with? Because everything you're saying, like none of it's true. <laughs> yeah, I think I agree with you, but can you, can you give some examples for folks who maybe didn't listen to the whole thing? Oh yeah, sure. Um, so when he was, he like, at one point he was saying to the crowd, like, you know, like you're responsible for, um, you know, meeting the needs of, you know, the people here in America and, you know, you guys are like, you know, taking care of people mm-hmm. and all this other stuff. And I'm like, what? And like, you even hear like, like the crowd is like so silent. Like usually, you know, people are laughing and whatever, but like, they're like dead silent. And like, even on the jokes that he was making about, um, like he, he made a joke about how everyone showed up to the correspondence dinner, um, you know, as if like a pandemic wasn't going on mm-hmm. and he like made a joke about that. And I thought that that was so ridiculous. Cause I'm just like, none of y'all have been following those rules period anyways. Like mm-hmm. those are rules are only for us. And, um, like it, I, like the whole, yeah, I just felt like I was <laughs> honestly, God, I just felt like I was being gaslit the whole time. Cause I just couldn't believe, um, I knew that he like believed what he was saying. Yeah. The thing with Trevor Noah, I I was a little, I I was a little unsteady about what I felt about this because I I feel like when he first came on the scene, well, not when he first came on the scene, but when he first became kind of a political pundit on the daily show, I watched with a lot of interest because I was kind of rooting for him and wanted it to work. And then a lot of the stuff came out about some of his bad dated cringe jokes and he wasn't performing as well on the show as I would have liked. And I felt like some of the writing was uneven. He was asked to comment a lot about American racial issues. And there was a mm-hmm. presumption, I think that he knew what he was talking about because he was black, but a lot of the stuff felt really tone deaf and off to me as a black American, mm-hmm. even though I was rooting for him, I was like, mm, this ain't it. I don't love this over time. That was many years ago. Now he's been there right. for like six or seven or eight years now. I don't know how long. And I I feel like he has grown and has been come sharper. And especially in those segments they release of him chatting casually with the audience after the show on YouTube, where he kind of like monologues, but it's not about comedy. He's just kind of talking. Sometimes mm-hmm. he can be very insightful. It shocks me periodically. He can be very insightful and thoughtful. And when I was listening to the jokes from the correspondence center, there was an unevenness there that I didn't know if I should attribute to the fact that he had joke writers and not all of them were coming from his, him and his voice or whether he is in this process of growing into being a person who was authentically chastising the press for not talking about Assange. Cause you're right. There was unevenness. He, he makes it a good pointed Assange joke. Mm-hmm. You know, and then at the end is like, well, I'm so lucky to live in America where I can make fun of the president and not get thrown into jail. It's like, but honey, right. you just made the Assange joke. Like, <laughs> you know, maybe you're not in jail because you're not actually challenging power in a meaningful way. You're doing this little like, you know, pantomime, you know, kabuki theater dance in front of the press corps. Right. Right. No, I like I totally get what you're saying, Brie, because I definitely had. I can definitely see what you're saying. Cause I think that, you know, in his most like recent, cause I don't watch him that often, obviously, but, um, the times that I have watched him, I have noticed that he's made, you know, like critiques that have actually hit home and like, um, like, re- yeah, like making like real critiques about like the system. I just, 
I like, right. Like, I just feel like this confusion of like, I feel like you're saying things that really aren't happening, but at the same time, you're pointing out things that actually are happening. <laughs> yeah. And, and look, I, I, I'm rooting for, if this really is like growing pains and he's just mm-hmm. kind of in this liminal space where he's trying to find his voice. Like, I'm glad that he's better now than he was in 2016 or whenever he took over the daily show. And I'm, you know, and I hope that that trajectory continues in the right direction. Like I, I want to acknowledge what I perceive to be some progress. Right. Um, I, frankly, I got to say, I thought it was a lot better than I thought it was going to be when I watched it. I got to say, right. I, I, I was kind of surprised that he acknowledged the COVID theater of it all. Right. That was surprising. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, the, the, the point that so many conservatives have made about how, well, yeah, all the attendees had to take PCR tests, but none of the staff did and they're all masked and the most of the attendees aren't masked. You know, I was, I was, I was pleasantly surprised that there was even an acknowledgement of it, but there's also this perverse perverse quality of the correspondence center, which is the fact that you're being allowed to say these things is an an illustration of how little it matters in terms of challenging power. And it is this little like safety release valve to let everybody make fun of the King so they don't have an actual revolution. Like once a year, you get to throw tomatoes at the king, <laughs> get it out of your system. So then you go and do, don't go and do revolution, and you continue under the apprehension, under the misbelief that you are in a democracy, which is that like that like solemn note that he ended on. Right, and that's like I guess that's kind of almost like what scares me because it's it's. Uh... It's because it's frustrating because, right, I'm seeing that he's pointing out the contradictions while I also feel like he's, you know, participating in the system because of the fact that, you know, he's right. Like you said, like he's not um, right. He's not like a threat or anything. But I don't know. I don't know. I guess it just it worries me that I I, I feel like I I just keep seeing like these very um, I keep seeing people come out and they're they're trying to like pacify everyone with in all these different ways. And I, I feel like I'm just getting so frustrated at this point of just people trying to pacify me. Yeah, I I get that. I get that. And that's like a weird, dangerous place to get into too, because I, sometimes I worry, Oh Lord, somebody authentic could come along and I'm so nihilistic at this point that I'm just, (laughs) I I have like trust issues. Right. (laughs) But like, like well, let's say about Tara Noah the same way that we said about Bernie, you know, the in a world where he gives a speech, you know, when Bernie gives the speech that would, you know, say F you to the establishment, I'll, I'll welcome him with open arms and follow him into the, the gates of hell. And if Trevor Noah says the thing that gets him kicked off of the Daily Show, I will similarly become a devotee. Right. Okay. I feel that. Okay. I can go. <laughs> I can go with that. <laughs> yes. Yes. You know, come to the come to the bright side, Noah. If you get canceled and start a Substack in a you know a, a Rumble account, I'm sure you'll do very well for yourself, and I will be here for it. <laughs> we are here for you, Noah. <laughs> come to Colin, Trevor. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for calling in, Savannah. It's been a delight. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for taking my call. All right. Well, thank you all. This has been a great call in. I feel like we kept it kind of tight. A little over two hours is better than three hours. I'm trying to, I'm trying to work out the fact that I have a parasocial relationship with you (laughs) when normally it's the other way with podcasters. I love this medium. I cannot be helped. I'm going to try to do more live streams separate from this. 
if I can carve out some time because I do think it helps engagement with the videos in the channel. And I know that there's like a visual visual component that people love as well. But a reminder that you can listen to these episodes after they post on Spotify. You can share them like a normal podcast from Spotify if you have friends or family who are not inclined to download the call-in app. Obviously, you can now listen to in the browser. And I heard that you can also now call in from the browser if you have a certain kind of browser. But don't quote me on that. Reminder that I love it when you guys clip bits of the episode and make it easy for me to share on uh, social media. And I want to remind everyone to take care of themselves. I know it's like a rough night. I've been kind of glib about the Rose stuff, but it's not great. I'm about to hang up and scramble a little bit to see if we can get an emergency guest to talk about it and also catch up because I'm sure we'll be talking about it all on Rising tomorrow. Um. Until then, though, I'm stalling because I lost my freaking video that I had queued up perfectly for this moment to play. Okay, someone earlier said something about uh, power and money, which reminded me of a lyric from a song by Janelle Monet that I'm going to play now because I finally got it queued up. This is seamless, almost like I have a producer. OMG, she's a professional. This is happening. You guys are so patient. Okay, here we go. Love you guys. And remember to keep the faith.
hundred men telling me cover up my areolas Why they blocking equal pay, sipping on their Coca-Colas Fake news, fake boobs, fake food, what's real? Still in the matrix, eating on the blue pills The devil met with Russia and they just made a deal We was marching through the street, they were blocking every pill I'm tired of whole text trying to tell me how to feel For real